VOCM presents Open Line. The opinions expressed on this show are not necessarily those of the station. And now your host, Patty Daly. Well, all right, and good morning to you. Thank you so much for tuning into the program. It's Friday, July the 22nd, and this is Open Line. I'm your host, Patty Daly, and David Williams. He's sitting in the producer's chair for this edition of Come On With It Open Line. If you're in the St. John's metro region, the number to dial to get in the queue and on the air to discuss whatever's on your mind, 273-5211, or elsewhere, it's toll-free, long distance, one 888 590-VOCM, which is 8626. Well, you just heard Brian Mador describe the fact that it's a beautiful, calm, blue sky day. Some 20 degrees already here this morning in the metro region. Some heat advisories or heat warnings in place for many parts of the interior of the island. And then just the fundamental friendly advice to put on some lube, well, some sunscreen, <laughs> and get some water on board before you go out. Find some uh, shady places to take a break. When required, and so with the heat scheduled all right throughout the weekend, the Tally Ten is this Sunday, and of course a trek from Paradise to Bannerman Park—it's really quite the tackle to take on, you know. So 16 kilometers, 10 miles. Hopefully, it's not too hot for the participants this go around, and it is good to see the fact that Mount Pearl Minor Soccer is back up and running. We know there's a labor dispute in the city of Mount Pearl, and you know this is not picking sides. But when you have young people and their families have signed up for some soccer, you look and think outside the box. So they've organized some time at some St. John's Fields, and they'll be back out there kicking it around sooner than later. That's a good thing. Uh, say good luck and safe travels to the Rock Senior Women's Rugby Team. They've been rejuvenated this year after a couple of years away. They're on tour in the Maritimes to take on a couple of teams, one PEI, one in Nova Scotia for sure. So good luck and safe travels to them. And today, probably a great day to hit the links. You know, everyone's familiar with Blair Bursey, or at least he should be. From Gander, terrific player, lefty, having some serious success out there on tour. Off to, uh, not the start he probably wanted this year, but go get him, Blair. And then you add in, like, a young fellow named Ethan Effort. He's from St. John's. He's going to play some NCAA golf at the Utah Valley University, of course, in Utah. Uh, also very recently won the 2022 Golf Canada Next Gen Atlantic Championships. Then you add in the young Snook girls, who are terrific. And any other name you want to pepper me with? Inside the world of golf, that's up and coming and playing some good, good stick and ball. Let's talk about it as well. What's this scribble? Okay. Congratulations to Ryan Green from Paradise. Just think about it as a parent and or a young person. At the age of 14, many young athletes are faced with a, a serious decision and a difficult one at that. Now, we all have to be realistic with the opportunities ahead of our young children, whether it be athletics, academics, or otherwise, whatever the case may be. You know, there's a lot of opportunity to live vicariously through our children, and maybe, just maybe, and this is human nature, to overstate their possibilities and their potential. Now, sometimes these dreams come true. There's lots of examples of it. And bravo to Ryan Green. He's traveling today to Calgary to participate in Canada's World Junior Team Camp. He was just drafted on the 8th of June uh, by Chicago, 57th overall in the second round. So bravo to Ryan. He, you know, had 14 leaves and goes to a prep school in Connecticut, then plays in the USHL for the Green Bay Gamblers, great name for a team. So we wish him nothing but the best at camp. At the same time, you know me, such a big fan of the sport and supporters of the entirety, the players in Hockey Canada. But we've got a problem, and we can't shy away from talking about it. So Hockey Canada is embroiled in a pretty serious scandal. 
not just necessarily about the fact that there was a serious sexual assault allegation stemming back to 2018, and we don't know who's involved yet, but we do know Hockey Canada settled a lawsuit with the woman who came forward. Now we go on to understand that Hockey Canada actually has a pot of money set aside to settle these types of suits. I mean, it just screams that they know the culture of the sport is broken, which breaks my heart. So if and when we have leadership willing to say, okay, we need to set aside some money to inevitably settle some more of these types of lawsuits, people know their sponsors, supporters of the sport, people inside Hockey Canada, politicians, everybody who sometimes or oftentimes gets behind hockey players as they don the maple leaf on the front of their sweater. This is not good enough, and it has to change. This is not to take away from Ryan Green's experience. I mean, when this all happened, he was 14. But there's a cultural thing sometimes in sports that as much as I'm a supporter of, as much as I love, and I live vicariously through sports as a mental break, acknowledging what's happening in the world is the only opportunity we have to make it safer and better for all involved. So good luck to Ryan, all the same. Speaking of the world surrounding sexual violence, sexual assault, it's worth throwing this out there as well. This is new from Memorial University, and I'll read the email. It's very brief. In keeping with best practices and a multi-layered approach to education and the, pre the prevention of sexual violence, Memorial University is introducing a mandatory sexual violence awareness and prevention course this year for new undergraduate students. As this course is mandatory, students will need to have completed it in order to register for their second semester courses. Students who successfully complete the course by 5 p.m. on Friday, the 23rd of September, this year will have their names entered into a draw for tuition credit in total four separate tuitions of $2,500 each so mandatory course on this front it's the right thing to do you know someone's told me when they shared this email a couple of people shared it with me it's good to have this honest and open conversation and of course provided mandatorily to first-year students new undergrads some people go on and say that it's, you know, Memorial covering its backside because they've offered this course and so now they've done their due diligence, they understand the issues. It might be a bit of both. But ultimately, as opposed to trying to nitpick, nitpick who and why and where this is happening, let's have honest to goodness conversations and hope that these courses become less required and mandatory that they seem to be this day and age. I don't know if that's the right way to put it, but you hopefully get my gist on that front. All right, let's keep going here. A couple of interesting ones today in history. We know that young Ryan Green is traveling virtually all across the country to get to Calgary for the World Junior Camp. It was today, in 1793, Alexander Mackenzie reached the Pacific Ocean, became the first person on record to cross North America over the Great Divide. Most of his travel happened through Canada. Most of the travel on foot, that's back in 1793. And I've mentioned this one before, back to the skies. Willie Post from Oklahoma, first person to fly solo around the world, almost 16,000 miles in his plane called the Winnie Mae, less than eight days, 19 and the 33. Okay. Also heard Brian Medora refer to the Atlantic Loop this morning, and we'll touch on a variety of hydro-related matters. The Atlantic Loop, when it was first brought forward by the federal government, this was not local businesses pitching it. This wasn't Nalcor pitching it. This was the provincial government of Newfoundland and Labrador saying, let's do this. This was a federal government initiative. It never really had a whole lot of detail about who built it, who owned it, what the cost to uh, transmit power over the lines be, to be owned by who, and the hierarchy to be governed by who, Hydro-Quebec. So now the Prime Minister says they're serious about it. I'll do some paraphrasing here. They're serious about it. They look at it as a great way to have 100% renewables uh, to power Atlantic Canada and beyond by the 2030s. Okay. Sounds great. But it's not that long ago that Minister Dominic LeBlanc 
said, well, we're not quite ready to get into this multi-billion dollar business with cash on the barrel head yet. Why? Because they're continuing to do their due diligence. Due diligence is always an excellent idea. But it's always an excellent idea to have more of it done prior to what are glossy photo op announcements to something that may or may not be real, that may or may not have any details, that may or may not have any real foresight into who's involved, how they get involved, and what the end result looks like. Some of this issue will boil down to whether or not outside of Atlantic Canada, where half of the power of Nova Scotia is still generated by coal, is the opportunity for the massive amounts of hydroelectricity in this province, Quebec, throughout the Maritimes, a home for it in the northeastern United States. It will all boil down to not only whether or not there's a monopoly associated with it, but just look in the state of Maine, they had a referendum that voted down the transmission line where Hydro-Quebec had struck a deal. So we can do all the things we want on that front. We can build all the wires, we can build all the dams, we can come up with partnerships, we can come up with plays, but it's the power purchase agreements further afield that will tell the tale whether or not this happens. Add it to a very similar file at the Canadian Infrastructure Bank, at this moment a good concept but pretty much a failure, the fixed link is also in it. So there's probably some hopeful good news there. But it'd be sure nice to have it beyond, you know, policy convention adoption and maybe a little bit more of an understanding. Now, this will lead people down. Well, we don't get enough in the way of detail, maybe my liking, I don't know about yours. People's minds go in funny directions. What's actually happening between the province and Hydro-Quebec? Right? It's a good question. Whether it be the relationship of the two provinces and the Upper Churchill, Muskrat Falls, Gull Island. Where do all these things fall in? It'd be nice to know because there's no real political downside to saying, here are some of the balls in the air. I don't expect to get a daily briefing and to be allowed to be a fly on the wall for every single meeting. But it'd be nice to know because people's minds, while we look at what has been deemed the debacle of Muskrat Falls, still not online, still issues to be settled and solved, where does golf fall in? Where does Hydro-Quebec fall in? And then you see some news which happened very quietly, but it stands to reason, based on how quietly the Churchill River Energy Analysis Team was struck. The province, I think, was on the right track when they formed a committee regarding 2041. What are the implications of 2041 and the maturing the contract between this province and Hydro-Quebec? It's always been a real, I think, misunderstood issue. So there's 5,428 megawatts at Churchill Falls. The ownership breakdown, uh, CFLCO, and the corporation that owns 65.8% of it, that's us, that's represented by Hydro, and 34.2% by Hydro-Quebec. So there are big opportunities there, but what does it really mean? You know, it, it all feels good to say, well, we will shed the boogeyman of Hydro-Quebec off of our collective backs and move forward with golden eggs. Maybe, maybe not. And how does that fall into the Churchill River Energy Analysis Team? The reason I'm bringing it up is because the 2041 was a big announcement, and the committee, a lot of good people on that committee, with a diversity of backgrounds. The energy analysis team, not so much. It, it was just good work by Alex Bill and his team at All Newfoundland and Labrador that came up with the fact they discovered that, yes, it is a thing, and it's being led by Brendan Paddock. Mr. Paddock represented the province on the rate mitigation deals with Ottawa. He has a wealth of business experience. And, of course, former chair of Hydro. The concept and the worry in many corners was, is he in a distinct conflict of interest? 
So a lot of that comes with the fact that John Risley, a partner of Mr. Paddock's, has made a hydrogen proposal here in the province. Okay, not exactly directly linked with any hydro analysis and opportunities for, but it pops itself up. This is where you just never really understand the thought behind quietly announcing something as important as the energy analysis team on the Churchill River. And Mr. Paddock could be a very helpful cog in the wheel. Absolutely. I'm not really that concerned that he's a friend of the Premier. The issue is whether or not there was a real, tangible conflict that had to be addressed. But when you do it quietly, people will inevitably think there's more to it than we're allowed to see. So now, quietly as it was formed, Mr. Paddock has quietly stepped away. Jennifer Williams, the CEO at Nalcor, is going to now take the team lead. But you know, whether or not Mr. Paddock should have been on this team... Every time people are not open, transparent, and answering the questions beforehand, not after the fact, this is what happens every single time. You just wonder what it's going to take. What will be the proverbial straw that breaks the camel's back of silence and secrecy? You tell us up front, people can understand. They may not like it. It might not be the answers they want. But when we find out after the fact, the reaction is constant and consistent every single time. You want to take it on? We can do it. Uh, da, 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 da. All right, so a bit of privacy. Now, sometimes privacy is important, not with the formation of government uh, task forces and the like. But now we find out that some 37,800 people belonging to the Eastern Health database have been seen their personal information breached, and they've been connect, contacted by Eastern Health. 21,000 people have signed up for the credit monitoring offered by the province, and it's probably an excellent idea for every single one of the 37,800 to do exactly that. This is a story I read, uh, brought forward by Rob Antle over at the SEEB. That's one in every 13 people in the province. So the story that was slack on detail now seems to be even possibly worse than we thought it was. Some 200,000 fods have been compromised, but now we know there's direct contact from Eastern Health to almost 38,000 Newfoundlanders and Labradorians that their information is in the hands of whoever the hacker is and whatever they did it for and whether or not there was a ransom and whether or not there's more to be seen, we don't know. But if you're one of those folks, you've been contacted, let's talk about it. And a couple of quick ones here. You know... So the thought and the focus on the Ukrainian refugees and the healthcare professionals that were part of the wave of newcomers that made their way to this country in this province. And the meeting that happened yesterday, we're told, with Minister Osborne, the Minister of Health Community Services, and these Ukrainian healthcare workers about doing something to fast track their ability to be accredited e more easily than it is currently in place and to be part of the team offering healthcare in the province. So, <laughs> some interesting emails on that front. One person says, we're falling for a bunch of uh, WEF, World Economic Forum, patsies who are here to upset the apple cart. Oh, my God, what's wrong with people? But, yes, it is important that they are absolutely up to Canadian standards. The problem is, if you have people who are healthcare professionals, doctors or otherwise, that have been in the country, like this Indian doctor in British Columbia, here for eight years, with eight years of practice back in India, still working in the call center. So, yes, we have to ensure that they meet all the standards set forward by the variety of, or the various colleges of physicians and surgeons, which should have much more of a national streamlined focus. Yes, something can and should be done. And it's not just the doctors, international medical graduates. And I see that the province is considering bringing nurse practitioners into the MCP fold. 
I've never, never really heard a good argument as to why they should not be inside the MCP world. It's an excellent idea for them to be opening up their own clinics. But when it's a fee-for-service, and many people are happy to pay it, whether it be $30 per visit or what have you, nurse practitioners are absolutely going to play a critical role in primary care teams, at collaborative clinics, in their own private clinic. But it's the MCP inclusion that makes it a much bigger deal, much more impactful for different regions of the province, but they're looking at it. All right, let me talk about some cost of living stuff too, very quickly. You know, we saw the inflation numbers, 8.1%, the highest in 39 years. And it has a massive impact, whether it be gasoline, food, and otherwise. The price of food is a really interesting one. During the summer months in Canada, the impact on price point and the impact on inflation is reduced somewhat because we have increased domestic production. We've long been talking about the need to do more, create more, uh, grow more, distribute more of locally grown, whether it be from root vegetables all through cattle. The province has done some things, you know, some additional 64,000 hectares of land to be put forth for agricultural purposes. That's moving pretty slowly. You know, I've mentioned peppering the landscape with greenhouses far and wide. And then we know that there's opportunities that have come and possibly gone regarding abattoirs. Now, there wasn't that long ago, there was a bunch of abattoirs shut down here in this province based on what was a fairly flimsy piece of uh, body work being done. But this one is, I think, somewhat disheartening. Let me see if I can pop it up here. All right. This was an opportunity to provide 10% of the province's consumption of red meat with an abattoir to be built out in Northern Arm, a group called uh, the Green Valley Regional Abattoir. They first put the business proposal back in the 20th of September of 2022, when it was extremely difficult to get things done. They made their personal family investment. There were similar dollars invested by the province. The to and fro and the frustration and the time and the money, given it's all about how to treat the waste product of the animals that have gone through the abattoir, there is a tried and true, well-understood practice that is used by all the other abattoirs in the province, but for some reason wasn't good enough for this particular facility to produce 10% of the province's red meat consumption, now possibly, unfortunately, and hopefully not, they've said enough is enough. They feel they've been put through the ringer. They're not getting any answers. And here we are, at the same time as the government's talking about doubling food production and adding 64,000 hectares of land and talking about the fact that 90% of what we consume comes in via Ocean X or Marine Atlantic, and this opportunity, multi-million dollar, jobs created, food provided, is now possibly shut down. We're going to speak with one of the members of the Humber family coming up at 9.30 on that one. Okay, and I see that there's a third debate coming for the Conservative Party of Canada leadership battle. Mr. Poliev says he won't uh, play along, or pardon me, that's not the right way to put it. He won't participate. He's the perceived front-runner, very likely is the front-runner, and he can do whatever he sees fit. I don't care if he participates or not. But, you know, it's an interesting thing when you look at the length of time it takes for Canadian parties to select a leader. And this is not a knock on the Conservatives, because all the parties find themselves in similar predicaments when they're looking for a new leader. In Britain, in the UK, when Boris Johnson steps down, their race started five months after the Conservative Party of Canada did. Their race to replace Boris Johnson will uh, conclude five days prior to the CPC determining who their winner is. It just takes too long. And it's not good for anybody. It's not good for the party. I'm not so sure it's good for the candidates either. But if you want to talk it on, we can do it. We're on Twitter. 
or VOCM Open Line. Follow us there. Our email address is opaline at VOCM.com. Taste of a tune before we come back and speak with you on this beautiful Come On With a Friday. Back in 1978, this band, who was just recently in St. John's down at Mary Brown Center, opening up for ZZ Top, Cheap Trick. They've made their first appearance on the charts and their first hit with Surrender. But don't you, don't go away. And welcome back to the show. Let's begin this morning on line number two. Good morning, John. You're on the air. Oh, good morning, Paddy. I hope you're feeling well these days. I'm feeling reasonably well. I'm on the mend, as they say, so that's the good news. Uh, yeah, well, I can appreciate uh, being, uh, not being well. <laughs> I've uh, been there numerous times myself. Um, but the reason I'm calling you today I was, uh, was about the Telly 10. Now, I don't know if you've done the Telly 10 or not. Uh, <laughs> I have participated in the Telly 10. I did finish the course. Uh, I'm not a runner, and I make a joke out of uh, my training included not going out Saturday night uh, before the race, but I did it just around two hours a number of years ago. It was extremely difficult on an extremely hot day. Well, you did it. I mean, it doesn't matter difference. You can difference what time you did it, and you did it, and that's, no one can ever take that away from you. Uh, no, I mean, now this is the strange thing about Telly in, in, in the days when I was running, uh, uh, people would come up after you who, who we knew from other runners and ask you how you did. And uh, one of my other friends would say, they weren't really interested in how you did. They wanted to tell you how they did. <laughs> That's pretty much true, yep. And uh, uh, I've done 18 of them. Now, bravo. I la- Pardon? I said bravo. Oh, thank you. Uh, uh, the, the last ones were a lot slower than the first ones, even though the first ones were pretty slow, too. But uh, I've done 18, and uh, I always tell people um, and that um, one of the ones that I did with weather conditions they were having uh, wasn't actually at a Telly 10. It was a race out in Harbor Grace that had one of the flattest 10-course races that we used to run on. Uh, but people were it was really extremely hot. It was just like it is today, and uh, people were dropping like flies. There, there's people I know who've never ran another race because they didn't know how to pace themselves, and there wasn't enough water stations and all that kind of stuff. But uh, I'm just uh, trying to advise uh, new people to it to drown herself. I mean, when you come to a water station, I mean, I we used to pour water over ourselves like like the buckets uh almost like a, like a mini shower and uh yeah i mean that's good to cool off you gotta get some water in you not like i'm any sort of experienced runner but i mean for athletics period especially on a warm hot day and the sun bearing down on you get some water in you the only thing i'd add to that is try to keep it away from your feet because if sure. the socks and the sneakers get wet the next thing you know on the telly ton the telly 10 monday you'll be looking down at some pretty awful blisters possibly so keep yourself yeah. uh you know yeah. keep some water in yourself hydrated and get some water over your head but do all you can to keep your feet dry. Yeah, and like we well, you, you used to, you know water station. You people usually think, well, I'll take it on a drink of water, but sometimes that causes cramping. And uh, what we normally would do is pour the water over our head. Sure. It takes two two bottles of water and pour the water over your head. But we didn't always have the weather conditions like we have having. Actually, there were some years when it was we didn't even have to pour water over. It was pouring down rain anyway. And, but there was uh, the, um, there was a numerous 
occasions. Uh, <clears throat> I, I can recall one year where we were running and a dog got onto the course, got struck. Some dog got off someone's backyard. He ran the whole telly ten, and because we got to the end, I said, "What are we gonna do with this dog?" <laughs> you know? And there was all kinds of funny stories about how how things went on during the race and whatever. And uh, you can always write, write a, a, a sports book. I know I can't recall his name. Who wrote a history of the telly ten, and. Uh, uh, he'd include all the funny stories that of people of what happened along the route and everything like that. But that was one I, that I recall was uh, a dog running the course. But uh, um, there was, you know, there was all kinds. Of, but I mean, you you don't want to see people dropping at the water at the, uh, with you know with the ambulances and stuff there because I mean that's really makes you feel bad. And at the top of Barter's of Long's Hill. Uh, we always used to say that uh, there's always a gathering of, am- of uh, ambulances that are there waiting for the people to drop because that's when they, you know, when it really hits you. But, I mean, the course is actually very hilly. There's only a couple of downgrades and level grades. There's usually a lot of upgrades. The first mile... Yeah, we're coming... Yeah, well, coming out of Octagon Pond, it's pretty much uphill. Once you get to the bottom and into Topsail Road, it's pretty much uphill for a while. Then you get a slight downgrade past Dodge City and what have you. But then when you get to the West End Fire Station, there's a what you know, it's the Boston Marathon Heartbreak Hill, and you can see it coming. It's like, oh my god! Oh yeah. But from there, it's all a blur. I can't remember any of it from then. (laughs) When you when you go to the um, before the overpass, we used to measure our time by uh, what time we would hit the overpass. What you know what I mean by the overpass, right? And uh, uh, up after that, it's up a really steep grade. And uh, and if you're not accustomed to it or used to it, or this is your first one or your second one, and, and sometimes even your second and third one, you, you're, you're always learning things from what happened the year before. But I mean, I've seen people who experienced runners who train every lunch hour, uh, go out and die once, uh, at uh, some point uh, along the course uh, because they went out too fast. Because what happens is you get uh, a thousand people there or whatever was running that year, and you're you're getting all yourself all psyched up, which is the wrong thing to do, of course. It's not psych yourself up, not like football players, you know, go around hammering each other and getting yourself all worked into a titter. You got to calm yourself down, and um, you try to not have the gun go off and away away you go like a shot right you know that that's basically the wrong thing to do is that you isolate yourself and try to keep yourself alone the fastest time i ever did it uh was 75 oh and i'm gonna say a nasty word oh freaking one 75 i hated that oh one <laughs> Because you could see the clock across the top because I wanted to go under 75. And I just couldn't speed up when turning down Bannerman Road. And uh, on top of the worst of that, I finished uh, 201st. <laughs> I mean, well, 
It's still a pretty impressive time, John. Probably very helpful advice for this year's participants, especially the newbies. It what proves to be a uh, very warm day on the course from Octagon Pond to Bannerman Park. It's a long drive, let alone a long run. I appreciate this this morning, John. Enjoy the rest of your day. Thanks for the call. Thank you. Bye-bye. You're welcome, sir. Bye-bye. Uh, yeah, it's a long one. Look, I'm not pretending to be any sort of runner because I'm not. <laughs> and uh, it kind of feels like some days I'm still out to run in that same tally 10. But it's an amazing thing. Thousands of runners that year. I can't remember, 4,000 or whatever. And you're asked to get in a pen based on what kind of time you think you'll run. So the Colin Fewers and the Kate Paisleys and the ones, they're in front, where they should be. By the time the big, big people like me, well, I should say big, the slow, less trained, not looking to set any sort of course records, we're in the back where we belong. By the time you actually get over the star line, Baisley and Fewer and the real sprinters up front, they're out of sight. They're gone down Tops Road. You can't even see them anymore. So it's uh, really quite something. But I'll tell you what the runners do appreciate is the folks that line up on the course just for a little clapping and applause and encouragement. I think it makes a difference. It made a difference for me, mostly because if I had slowed to a crawl walking, when I saw a group of people there clapping on the runners and supporting them, I would inevitably feel like I'm forced to get back into a jog. So it got me home quicker than I probably would have. All right, let's go ahead and take a break. When we come back, Susan Guiney, our good friend is in the queue, Susan Guiney, and her husband Bill, they're doing walks and runs and push-ups, all in an effort to raise awareness regarding mental health. Then Johnny Kay, he's in the loop to talk about a Fairland athlete of note that we're going to discuss, and then we're going to talk about health care, and then we're going to talk about whatever you want to talk about. Don't go away. Weekdays on VOCM, it's Open Line with your host, Patty Daly. Join the conversation each morning from 9 a.m. to noon on your VOCM. We get people talking. And welcome back to the show. Well, let's go back to the fall of 2022, September. And the province is talking about the need to increase our food security. You know, putting forward additional land for agricultural business projects to come forward. Talking about the need to be more self self-sufficient. So Green Valley Beef, they put forward a proposal that was registered in September 2022. Time was of the essence. They had to put their own money into the tune of $800,000, had to have the facility completed by March of 2021 to get ready to go, open the door, and start operating as an abattoir, supplying 10% of the province's beef. Here we are in July of 2022, and it might be over. Joining us on line number seven is Troy Humber, representing Green Valley Beef. Good morning, Troy. You're on the air. Hi, Patty. Thanks for taking my call. I'm really happy to take your call. I read this story with great dismay. We talk about the issues surrounding food security in this province all the time. The province talks a big game. Take us back to the fall of 2022, or 2020, pardon me, and the thought behind Green Valley Beef. Well, Patty, uh, my, my heart always went out, and I, I really believed in the uh, this food security need for the province, and, and we were prepared to do our part and uh, really believed in the project. So we were, uh, we were planning on... Um, uh, beef for a number of years, and we had built our own cattle herd aiming towards this abattoir. And when the project came out uh, and was released by the government for a cost-shared uh, regional abattoir program, uh, we jumped on side. We thought, "What a great, what a great project! Much needed for the province." So uh, we we were uh, we applied. We were the successful applicants, and. Uh, and uh, we decided to build. And uh, as we moved forward, uh, we got all of our permits, and 
And about a month into it, uh, we received a uh, notice that we would be required to do an environmental assessment. Uh, upon that, I called the Department of uh, Agriculture and said this was going to be a requirement. And they said it's just a formality. The the Premier wants this to go ahead. The ministers want this to go ahead. The province needs it. Just uh, submit it as, as you put in your proposal and uh, all is good. Keep going. So I continued to build and... Uh, and upon our completion, uh, before the before the date in March, uh, we were ready to go, and uh, received a cease and desist order from the Department of Environment. Uh, stop building! Don't move forward! Don't open your doors! Uh, and uh, and that's dragged on for us. Uh, as a tug of war back and forth until this very day where nobody returns my phone calls and uh, and I can't get a response. Well, we're going to get you one today. Just for additional context, sometimes when we hear from companies that they arrive at the point where there's an environmental, environmental assessment required, some people listening will think, well, they must be looking for some sort of exemption, you know, some sort of special latitude. But this is not the case at all. All the abattoirs in the province deal with the exact same process for waste management of the animals. It's a trenching protest, uh, process, compost, berry. So let's put that out there. You received all the permits to, uh, to build the well, the septic, commercial building, the electrical, all the rest of it. The same process to manage the waste was in place, as your understanding. Generally, the abattoir concern is not having enough representatives from the Canadian Food Inspection Agency to manage all and inspect all the abattoirs, but that was in place. So tell us what the other abattoirs are doing with the animal waste, because we know it's important to have an environmental assessment, but this wasn't looking to redesign the wheel. Yeah. Uh, Everybody else, all the other abattoirs across the island up to this point have uh, either composted buried uh trenched and buried or uh, or recycled as needed and used it you know as you would uh and uh we were put under a a new uh glass i guess and uh and they want to create a new standard maybe but uh, i i really don't have all the answers but uh, the composting and burying and trenching wasn't an option for us. Uh, my initial environmental assessment uh, got rejected uh, for the compost and bury, which was the standard that I had put my proposal in on in 2020 and was accepted by the Department of Agriculture because it was the standard and uh, currently is the standard today for all the other abattoirs on the island. Um, why we're singled out, I don't know, and I can't get an answer. But when the government's talking about doubling uh, food production and food security, and this could have provided 10% of the red meat consumed in the province, it's really extraordinary that there's not an answer and an easy one and a quick one forthcoming. So were there any alternatives offered? I was seeing the new, in the story that you wrote or posted on Facebook about buying a reefer trailer and trying to figure out a way to move forward while the environmental assessment and while the consultant was going to do his or her work. So what alternatives were explored? Uh, what was given to me at the time, uh, uh, we had exhausted uh, all of our avenues, um, and I've, I finally threw my hands up in the air back in June of 2021 and said, I, I, I don't know where to go. I, I'm going to have to go to the media. 
Upon that, uh, the Department of Environment and the Department of Agriculture scrambled, and uh, they asked for 30 days and another 30 days, and uh, they came up with a solution. Uh, they said, uh, well, what you can do in the short term to get your environmental assessment passed is uh, you can bring all of your waste to Brookfield Road. Uh, the Department of Agriculture wrote the environmental assessment for me for me to submit to the Department of Environment and uh, said this will this will pass so it went, it went to the Department of Environment and I was to bring my waste out to Brookfield Road and have it all incinerated uh, for a short-term solution and then what would happen was an environmental consultant would be contracted by the Department of Agriculture and they would find a suitable burial site up on my on my farming land and we would be able to do the same thing that everybody else would do um so that was all accepted the only issue is uh, with that is uh, one the incinerator is in brookfield road yeah they can only accommodate a um, an animal or two a, a week uh, and they don't hold a permit with CFIA to burn the animal waste from cattle. And uh, CFIA wants me to bury or compost or trench on my own property, so the provincial body is saying I must incinerate and don't hold a permit. The federal body is saying I've got to do what everybody else is doing. And uh, the the... And I've never seen an environmental consultant. They've never they've never shown up. So between the feds and the province, we'll call them the left hand and the right hand, uh, neither knows what the other is thinking or saying or recommending, and basically the left and the right hand has got the proponents slapped silly. So this is extraordinary. Um, how many people did you have on staff? Uh, directly related to that position, uh, there was seven, uh, up to 11 at times, uh, with the potential for that to grow. How much money has the family or the company invested to, to date? Uh, we're over $1.2 million. Where's the future? What's next? Uh, there's, there's no future for Green Valley Beef or the regional abattoir. Uh, it's no longer financially viable, and there's no solution in sight. Um, it, it's just an idle building. We've closed down. We've laid everybody off. Uh, we've tried to sell off equipment to try and uh, cover the expenses of that uh, of that building and uh, and all the infrastructure uh, the cost of holding cattle for uh, almost two years was astronomical when you can feed an animal but you can't slaughter it um, you know so there, there's no future for Green Valley beef or Green Valley Regional Laboratory it's, uh, it's pretty well dead in the water this is not the first time we've heard from either proponents or active uh, participants in the industry about whether or not the province is farm-friendly. So it's difficult to have it both ways, to be farm-friendly or not, to talk about doubling food security or food production or not, to deal with the issue as it persists day after day, year after year in this province. So this is an extremely unfortunate story, and that's just me saying it. It's not my $1.2 million gone. It's not my 11 people belong to me that I've had to lay off. It's not me shuttering the building. So we can only imagine what the Humber, fa the Humber fa family 
is feeling. So considering trying to take your shot in another province, whether it be somewhere else in Atlantic Canada or other parts of the country, because there's a distinct need for domestic production on a variety of fronts. So are you going to pursue the dream, albeit elsewhere? Uh, n- no, I'm uh, I'm too far into it uh, in Newfoundland and Labrador to uh, to move elsewhere. Uh, but if I had a choice, I'd I'd be out of agriculture uh, in a heartbeat, and uh, I wouldn't I wouldn't farm in this province again. On behalf of the industry, you, your family, Green Valley Beef, we're going to do all we can to get uh, representatives of the Department of Agriculture, Environment, Canadian Food Inspection Agency, because when you're offered a workaround to transport at your own cost, one carcass or two at a time per week to Brookfield Road from Northern Arm, and they don't even have a permit to incinerate, you've been asked to do the impossible and possibly the illegal. So we're going to do what we can. It might be just a fool's errand at this point of view, and the family have decided that that's it. We're not going to open those doors. The dream is we're still going to chase because, unfortunately, your story might not be the last story uh, similar vein. I'll give you the last word, Troy, before we say goodbye. Patty, uh, I appreciate uh, all and all your help, uh, and I appreciate the, the listeners taking the time to listen to my story. Uh, but to Minister Bragg and Minister Davis and Premier Fury, you were all well aware of my issues and that you directly created, and you did nothing to help. Uh, shame on you all. Uh, for what you've done to my business and my employees and my family. And um, I don't know what else to say. Well, we appreciate making time. I know it's a very difficult time for you, the company and the family, but we're going to follow up regardless because this can't just be the end of the story. It might be for you and yours, but for the rest of us in the province, with the opportunity for 10% of the red meat to be produced in Northern Arm with a viable plan, investment made, the building constructed, permits granted, it's not good enough. So we're going to try to get all representatives involved on the show immediately uh, as soon as possible. So I'll give you the heads up when they're coming on, Troy. Thanks, Patty. I do appreciate that. I appreciate your time. Take good care. Boy, oh boy, it's Troy Humber from Green Valley Beef. Good plan, approved, invested in, and not just the family's money. Over $700,000, I think it's 720 come from the province. And what happened? September of 2020, project is registered. July of 2022, it's dead. Not good enough. We're taking a break. Don't go away. Welcome back to the program. Well, here we go. Loop the loop. Shake it up, baby. Wait, now that's a different one. This is the loop the loop fundraiser, mental health. Join us on line number two is our line number one is a good friend of the show and a real supporter and advocate inside the mental health community in Newfoundland and Labrador. That's Susan Guiney. Good morning, Susan. You're on the air. Good morning, Patty. Can you hear me okay? I can hear you just fine. Thank you very much. Okay. So coming up tomorrow, uh, Bill, who, I mean, I don't know if people have been aware of the good work that you and Bill have been doing, and Bill with his powerhouse push-up program and walking across the province last year and all the rest of it to raise awareness and money for the Canadian Mental Health Association. Tomorrow, walking your third leg of Loop the Loop. What's happening? Well, we're starting tomorrow morning at 10 a.m. at uh, Melvin's ATV in Torsco, and we're walking to the Torres Chalet in Whitless Bay. It's about 11 kilometers. We're expecting to arrive at the chalet around 12.30. And then at 1 p.m., we'll have a couple of people up to say a few words. Uh, among the walkers tomorrow is going to be John Abbott and our MHA, Loyola Driscoll. And Seamus O'Regan is going to join us in the walk. They're walking with Bill. So, uh, And the town is providing a barbecue at 1 p.m. 
And we have, um, I'm not, I don't know if I'm going to say this right, a caricature artist. Yep. He's doing, like, um, portraits for people, and the proceeds are going to go towards the cause. And uh, we're just really looking forward to it. We're, we're going to be uh, quite busy tomorrow morning, so... And they have it all set up down at the chalet. Um, uh, good, uh, well, actually, he's actually a family member. He's been participating with us the past three or four years, doing push-ups and walking with us. And he's working at the chalet tomorrow, Riley Han, and he's going to be there to help us tomorrow. So it's great that he's going to be part of it again. So Bill's caricature should be a little bit like Popeye. Yeah, that's what I was thinking, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Terrific. So you're doing it for a real personal reason. You have been for all these years. What kind of difference do you think you and Bill are making out there? What's the difference that you're trying to make, Susan? Well, we just want people to not be ashamed of, to talk about things, open up, and don't be afraid uh, to come forward. And it's okay to talk about mental health. Everybody has mental health. It's in all of us. There's, mental Ill- there's a difference between mental health and mental illness. And uh, we just want to give our voice to show that we're okay talking about it and it's okay to talk about it. And the more we talk and the more we walk with people and talk with people, uh, it just so many people reach out to us on uh, media or like on Facebook or uh, they contact us per- per- um, in person. Uh, we got to meet uh, in our walk on Riverhead. We got to meet with uh, Krista and uh, Stella, the support dog. Mm-hmm. And she's going to be joining us in the walk in Cape Royal, uh, July 30th. Um, and then we're going to finish up in Renews and, uh, with the activities at the um, town council building. Or, and they're ending it in Fermuse that night. Uh, with a dance, August the 13th. And the the name of the club is called The Loop. So we're going to loop the loop in the loop that night. It's perfect. So tomorrow, Willis Bay, you're going to start at Melvin's uh, ATV. So that's right at the corner where the road into Torres Cove starts, I believe. Yeah, yeah, where it goes down into Burn Cove, yeah. Yeah, yeah and so then back in the witness page is going to be barbecue. Think you'll arrive around twelve thirty, one o'clock to be a couple of speakers. The barbecue, the caricature artist, then of course a couple more legs coming up. Cape Broil on the thirtieth of July, Renews on the thirteenth of August. Uh, say hello to Bill for me, Susan. You're doing tremendous stuff, right. and we're always more than happy listening. to try to give you some support. <laughs> yeah. What? Yeah, I think he's listening. Okay, terrific. Uh, yeah, thanks, Patty. I appreciate all this, and it was nice nice to have you back. Uh, it's good to be back, Susan. Keep up the good work. Say hi to Bill. We'll talk again soon. Okay, sounds great. Okay, bye-bye. As Susan and Bill Guiney, they've been doing this for years now. You know, these types of walks. And just remember, I think it was every kilometer, Bill would drop and do 10 push-ups, I think, as they walked across the province. I think it was last year. All the years started to blend together a little bit. But it's made an appreciable difference. So for everyone out there, whether or not you've been a vocal advocate inside the world of mental health, mental illness, mental wellness, keep it up even if you haven't been someone who's been loud and out there and doing it and trying to be as forceful as possible you know anything you do inside your own world anything you do inside your own social circle your family is part of bringing us forward if you'd ever like to take the next step to talk about your own personal circumstance things regarding interactions with the government and the healthcare system the mental health care system we're happy to talk about it on this program because as susan rightfully points out 
There is nothing to be afraid of or ashamed of. I know that's an easy thing to say for some, but for others, it's been a real struggle. But if we can be part of making that struggle a little bit easier, whether it be short-term, long-term access to mental health services, professionals, counseling, and otherwise, let's talk about it here on the show. Let's take a break for the newscast. When we come back, Johnny Cavanaugh is remaining in the queue. He's going to talk about an athlete from up to shore, Fairland in particular, and then we're going to have lots of time to speak with you. Don't go away. Saturday morning, join us for the Irish Newfoundland Show. Send your request to irishnl at vocm.com or submit them online at vocm.com. Uh, welcome back to the program. Let's keep going here. Let's go to line number three. Good morning, Johnny Cavanaugh. You're on the air. Good morning, Patty. How are things this morning? Top shelf. How about you? Oh, a bit nervous, sir, so you'll have to haul me through this one. No worries at all. Tell us about Bill. Okay. Uh, I'd like to take a moment to talk about a member of the sporting world in Fairland who passed away a few days ago after a lengthy illness. And uh, Bill, or Billy as he's known in the in the community, uh, when it comes to softball and hockey, he was uh, instrumental in uh, developing some great talent uh, in both sports, uh, softball and in hockey. And I guess uh, what made him so uh, unique, I guess, or stand alone, was that uh, he spent his endless hours in the field uh, before and after games. He would play games himself, double hitters, whatever, and before he go home, he would always make sure that the field was maintained, the infield and the batting box or whatever the case may be. But he was always there to drag people to the to the Philly Gardens or to the corner broke areas, whatever. He'd take players in softball and hockey, whatever the case may be. He was a leader. He was a captain of the, the hockey team who had many championships on the Southern Shore, senior senior league type deal. And uh, I guess uh, he uh, we had the opportunity, Patty, in uh, 2019 uh, to honor some of the f- founding members, uh, 50 years uh, plus, whatever, and uh, it gave us the opportunity to uh, recognize and honor Bill uh, for his contributions and dedication, I guess, and. Uh, when the award was called, uh, I guess, in memory, uh, you could hear a pin drop. Uh, Billy was uh, he was kind of unstable at the time, and he was using a walker. But uh, when his name was called, he certainly had uh, the willpower to stand and uh, come forward for his award. And I guess uh, the community was so proud of that moment. And uh, I just wanted to uh, mention a few things as to uh, what he was as a builder, a mentor. He uh, he maintained the teams. He kept the maintenance uh, with regard to the schedule. He mentored the young kids. Uh, he coached junior and senior. He played uh, his kid played minor hockey. So he came right on through to the over three decades uh, from the late 60s, 70s, and 80s, whatever. So his heart was always in the right place. And uh, I guess he, uh, just as an example, Patty, I guess on the on the humorous side of it, uh, we were running a provincial tournament, a bantam tournament, and. Uh, we had a monsoon of rain the night before, and the field was a mess, obviously. But uh, Southpaw Newfoundland were planning on just uh, calling it off, obviously, because the tournaments all over the Avalon were, were cancelled. But Billy, in his wisdom, he uh, loaded up his truck with players and headed to the sawmill and took every bit of sawdust he had there and soaked up the water in order to get that provincial tournament off and running. So uh, I guess we're together to go on above and beyond. He was in an era of Gus Walters and Johnny Say of Argentia and... and uh, uh, I guess Dewey Fitzgerald area, but mm-hmm. uh, I guess the uh, we are uh, we always had the guys that could swing the bats and uh, score the big goals. But uh, Billy would do to help make it all happen, and uh, the town was very proud to have such a dedicated leader who always put Fairland first on his sleeve. So uh, I appreciate the time to do this, and condolences goes out to the family. And uh, 
I guess that's it for me. On a personal note, Billy was my mentor. Uh, personally, uh, and after losing my parents at a very young age, uh, within three months, Billy was my mentor at my uh, teenage years and into my 20s. So overall, he was he was good, but on and off the field and on the ice. So my heck goes off to Billy, and uh, I'm sure he's, he's resting well. I really appreciate you making time, Johnny. You know, and it's one thing for someone to be on the field and on the ice and performing, but the behind-the-scenes stuff and the dedication, of even just a truck full of sawdust to get that minor softball tournament going and to make sure that the lines are on the field and fixing up the batter's box and making sure that it's not just on the ice and on the pitch that makes you part of the sporting community. Billy was bigger than that. Is Doris still alive? Yeah. So Doris, uh, his wife, buried back in the early 70s. He has two children, Michael and Sherry. Uh, on top of his exploits as an athlete, as an organizer, Billy was a farmer, wasn't he? He was a farmer, and he had always had his tools in his truck going to the field an hour before time to, to do all the maintenance. Then he'd play he'd play, play two games, obviously, and then he'd, uh, he'd do the same thing over and over again. So he was the equipment manager the whole bit at that time, that era in the 60s and 70s, obviously, so... But it was all behind the scenes that made the guys like Wayne Barnival and the Will Kearns star in, 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 their, in their portfolios of hockey and softball sort of thing. But he was, he was the glue of the, of the community that made it all happen. And be very competitive as, as a small community and running into the big centres like St. John's and Cornerbrook and, and Central, whatever. We were always up there in senior uh, CMB ball. And, and uh, as you know, the Philian Gardens was busting at the time uh, in the 60s and 70s. If you weren't at the Philian Gardens on a sunny night, you were in the dark on the southern shore because there wasn't many around. Absolutely. So, anyway, I, so I mean... <laughs> The competition between the hockey teams up the shore was really quite something. It's one thing to know the breakers playing on the provincial side and all that stuff, but between the small communities and their own senior hockey teams, that was a real thing, I can guarantee, and I'm familiar with it. The, uh, the Fairland Flyers, there's a long-storied history there. Uh, I had a quick glimpse at his obituary. Not to say I really knew the man, but I certainly knew of Bill Kavanaugh. I think he's also famous, and the family was famous for having a bit of a good time and getting the music going, and I think Boxing Day parties in particular. Well, that's for sure. And like you said, he was the, he was the catcher behind the ball team. He was the captain of the hockey team, obviously. And he had one trademark. He had this big wad of old chewing tobacco in, and everyone he certainly left his mark in every field that he came to. And he was he was he, he was really good friends with Johnny Say of Argentia because Johnny used to supply it from the base and get it pretty cheap. So he he had his connections. Our condolences to his entire family and his friends in Fairland and elsewhere up and down the southern shore. I really appreciate you making time, Johnny. This was an excellent call. Thanks for your time, Paddy. Have a good weekend. Take good care of yourself. You too. Bye-bye. That's Johnny Kavanaugh bringing forward some memories of the late Billy Kavanaugh from Fairland. I mean, I've got nothing but the deepest respect, not just for the athletes and the determination and the commitment and the... The exploits on the field or on the ice or on the pitch or wherever, but it's those people who do that extra mile to ensure that the, the minor tournament goes ahead and that the field's in good shape. And it's given back after your playing days have come and gone. That's, uh, that's an extraordinary trait. And so really appreciate Johnny making time for the show. Okay, let's try to stay on track with the breaks somewhat here today. Uh, when we come back from this break, Dave Williams is going to tell me who's next in the queue, and then we're speaking with you. Don't go away. All right, welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number eight and say good morning to the mayor of Long Harbor, Mount Arlington Heights. That's Walter Keating. Good morning, Mayor Keating. You're on the air. Good morning, Patty. Thanks for taking my call. Happy to do uh, it, sir. Number one, I'm just doing fine. A beautiful sunny day out in Long Harbor. We got uh, 20 degrees, and it's calm, and it's, it's a beautiful day. Terrific. 
Patty, before I get started, we have our activities coming next weekend, but I would like to comment on the people who are doing the walk for mental health. I believe that that is so great to hear because going through a situation where we lost our son, Joan and I, my wife, and that's uh, 25 years ago, I'm so proud of them for doing that. And we're open all the time and talking about what happened to our son so as we could help other people. That was in Thunder Bay when we moved back home, uh, like I said, last year permanently. But that's great news to hear and talk about it. Keep talking about it. It's great for everybody. What happened to your son, sir? Well, what happened was I found him on a Sunday morning in his own house, and he had committed suicide. And again, that was, you know, like, go ahead, Patty. Well, I was just going to say, you know, it's uh, losing a child, regardless, is the level of grief that I'm, I hope I never have to experience. Death by suicide always will have a little different type of conversation and emotions associated with it. I'm always quite struck by the brave, I don't know if it's brave or courageous or whatever the right term is for families to be willing to talk about their own loss because it's so personal. But when we don't talk about it, then things perpetuate in the shadows. It only gets worse or at the very worst, the or pardon me, at the best case scenario, status quo persists, which is not working for families and individuals. So thank you for you and your family's willingness to talk about it. And even this 25 years later. I'm sorry for your loss. As a father, I can't imagine. I can only imagine. And good on the Guyanese and everyone else out there who's doing what they're doing, bringing awareness, having these open and public and honest conversations. It helps. Yes. You know, that's what I said to people. We never hit it. We talked about it. Regardless of what, when you're looking at some other person who's going through that need, they asked us, how could you stay together? How'd you do it? What was your feeling? And I said there was good, positive people, good church faith, and we always came together. That's wonderful, albeit from the saddest of circumstances. I'm really pleased to hear that, Mary Keating, and you're most welcome to yeah. talk about that and any other issue on the show. But I know you also want to touch on what's happening in your community with this particular summer Come Home Year. Yes, the Come Home Year is coming up for us on July the 28th, next Thursday. We have our starting off, of course, uh, the community card game is in the town hall, right? 120 is right at 7 p.m. On July the 29th, we have our Mummers Parade, which is coming from the town council office to the ball field. And that's our opening ceremony, which is at the ball field that night at 8 p.m. Of course, then there's entertainment all evening and that. And then Saturday, July the 30th, we'll have our horseshoe tournament starting at 10 o'clock in the morning. And then we have Kids Day, right, which is from 11 on. And then Saturday evening, of course, is local entertainment by our local group in the community. We have a lot of people in Long Harbor Mountain tonight who are good singing, musicians. They're really good. And then, of course, which is so important to all of us in the community, on July the 31st, we have our cemetery mass, which looks back on the cemetery and all of our siblings. And it's always a great turnout. And we have a brunch after that. It's 11.15 at the cemetery. So looking forward to that because that's showing respect for our parents and all of our siblings and and pay tribute to all of them. So that's a great, great closing on a Sunday. And, of course, we have our boat race and the usual thing, and it winds up at 6 o'clock and 7.30 right at at the bingo hall, and it's all done on Sunday. 
So for all that, Patty, again, uh, like I want to thank all the volunteers that are involved, everybody who came together in our community to make this happen. And I'm praying to God we'll have the sun like we have this morning. And again, I thank you for your time for accepting my call this morning. I appreciate your time this morning. Hopefully it's a roaring success in your community and elsewhere. Is the community at large behind it? Because I know the industry really needs a leg up this go around, and the booking numbers are very strong via air, marine Atlantic, and otherwise. But I hear people pushing back saying, you know, there's more things to worry about than come home year. I'm bullish on it. I'm optimistic about it. How's the community at large thinking? You know what, Patty? We we started. We had a volunteers' night. Was my first time as mayor, and uh, we went to the community hall. And this is after uh, you know a couple of years. I was away for forty-one years, of course, and I come back. And I was always a part of the community before I left. And and we had a gathering. We had over ninety-two people that showed up that night, and we had a fantastic time. There was laughter. We had songs, and it was great. And I'm looking forward to this weekend coming up as again being the top of the line. And they all are behind us. They're looking forward to getting out, looking forward to talking, to communicate with each other, which is great. I think it's awesome. Hopefully everyone has fun and it's a safe, pleasant time for all involved. Congratulations to you and everyone who organized the events because sometimes you read it in, in the bulletin or in the town paper or you yeah. see it on the town's website or on Open Line. You think, well, there's nothing to that. It takes a massive effort to put anything together, especially with multiple events. So appreciate this and congratulations. Good luck with it, Mayor and then I have one more thing I would like to say, sure. which is I'm so proud of, like, being away from home for 40. I have a granddaughter who went to St. Mary's College in Shadyac, right? Down where mm-hmm. Crosby went to the school. She was the number one goaltender at the university, all in the States. She is looking to go on the PGA, Lady LPGA Tour. She's in Oshawa this weekend. She qualified in Manitoba last weekend. She's going to Oshawa for all juniors ladies golf tournament this weekend. So at 17 years old, this is a positive note too and a happy note for us and the family. Fantastic, Uh, the best of luck to her. So she's got her sights set on playing in the States and the NCAAs? She was down there all last year. She played uh, goalie. She beat out a couple of down there. She was number one goalie down there. And she's also, like I said, looking forward to getting on the LPGA. (laughs) <laughs> at 17 years what's old. her name what's her name reese keating reese keating well hit him straight and hopefully she can hold some pots so that's absolutely brilliant there's a real reason why hockey players turn out to be pretty good golfers as well and that's a distinct correlation right across the world of hockey so the very best to reese say hello to her for me i will patty and she's on thunderbaynews.com and it's all over ontario and she's uh she's hitting the light from How great is that? Of course. Newfoundland. Okay. Love it. <laughs> Thanks, Mayor. Thanks, Freddy. All the best. Okay, that was a pretty good way to wrap up that call. Way to go, Reese Keating. Good luck with it. Uh, that's Mayor Walter Keating. He's from the town of Long Harbor, Mount Arlington Heights. Let's go to line number six. Good morning, Barry. You're on the air. Good morning, Patty. Thanks for taking my call. No problem. And, and I'll say welcome back. Thank you. Appreciate it. Patty, uh, I called this morning about the boat limit for the food fishery. Now, I know I've been talking about it a lot before, and I thought I was done with it. Uh, but the, uh, just this weekend, after this weekend, a friend of mine called me, who has no reason to lie, and I, and I trust, said that they, him and his wife and, and, and uh, another person were out in the boat. Now, he has a 16-foot aluminum boat. It happened to be a spectacular, beautiful day in the water, which is why he took three people. Otherwise, it's used to him and his wife. They got 15 fish. 
They came to the wharf. When they came to the wharf, here was a DFO officer, and that's great to see. The officer made the inspection. Everything was okay. But then the officer said to my friend, if you had four people out in the boat and you had more than 15 fish, I will charge you right now. And he said, if this keeps up, then the limit is going to go to three fish per person per day, and, you're go- and we'll cut back on the season. Now, Patty, I was talking with DFO, as you were too, I guess, and uh, there's been no mention of a reduction. They, they, they said that it may happen if there's abuse. But the way, you know, this officer put it is that it's going to happen. And I think that this officer is interpreting the law for him, himself and also uh, fear-mongering to an extent that's trying to keep people in line. I know myself that if they, if, if they were charged, the officer would be laughed out of court and probably reprimanded for wasting the court time, money, and resources. And I just like to put it out there that you know DFO should come out with a uh, with a written policy with a written statement saying about the boat limit, and because there's people out there who believe it, people who don't, people are skeptical. Some people don't know what to think. Well, the problem begins with grey areas. You know, for years we've been wondering whether or not this was actually legislated and there was a crime to be committed if five of us in the boat came home with 25 fish. Then there's the email that I've circulated. I mean, people ask me for it, so I send it. But it includes some grey. We encourage people to abide by the five per person, 15 per boat. There is not a legislative requirement to do exactly that, but if people start to abuse it, da-da-da-da-da-da. When ifs and buts are candy and nuts, we'd all have a Merry Christmas. But when we're talking about things like this, it just creates a problem for the individual going out, for the enforcement officers, for DFO themselves. So it's about time we put something hard and fast, black and white, easy to understand, no gray area, no one officer enforcing it over the top, no other officer just turning a blind eye to it, because that creates a problem. Who's to say which officer I'm going to run into? So that can't be up to me. It should be up to DFO and hard and fast rules. Now, I know people don't want to have any rules associated with the fishery, but rules that are easy to understand are better than rules that are confusing. Absolutely, Patty. Absolutely, and you know the, uh, the the media mostly is going by the statement issued by DFO, which is saying that 15 fish is the maximum amount of fish for three or more people. And but in that statement that uh, that you're talking about from DFO, they say that that's clearly not the case. But you know to have DFO officers, or and I have great respect for them, and as well as provincial officers, as you know, Patty. They, then for interpreting the law, that is completely wrong and it's not right and needs to be adjusted and needs to be fixed. Yeah, and that goes back to leadership and making sure all the officers, all the river guardians, all the everybody that's in the monitoring, the oversight business is all on the exact same page. No opportunity for people to read between lines or to manufacture what's not there or to misinterpret what might be there. So that's well, that's where leadership comes back, and that's where they need to make sure that all hands are reading from the same hymn book. I appreciate this, Barry. Anything else you want to say about it this morning? Uh, absolutely, Patty. Thank you very much for the opportunity. And uh, just a, a further note about our other program we have on Go Sharing Harvest and Out, Patty, but the uh, new seed donations. Uh, myself and my daughter and my wife and my mom just uh, recently collected some paper and we got uh, close to 40 Ziploc sandwich bags with Baker's Dozen each bag. And uh, we donated them to the, uh, 
Singer Parent Association is Land Labrador and to the uh, Bridges to Hope. We're hoping to get something done, done with the blueberries. Coming this fall, Patty, we have major announcement. That is, we have received uh, financial backing to be able to have the ability to pay for the hunter's meat that they want donated now. So if, if you're a big game hunter, you want to donate a quarter of moose, we would pay for the butchering and possible transportation of that to, to the nearest food bank that you want to, to go to. That's terrific. Good news there. And keep the, the, the good news coming, Barry. Appreciate your time. Hope you have a nice weekend. Thank you, Patty. It's always been a pleasure. Take good care. All righty. Bye-bye. Okay, uh, yeah, break time. All right, uh, let's go. When we come back, we're going to talk about a, a rally in support of what's happening or awareness of what's happening at the New West Valley Hospital. That's Jennifer in the queue, and then we're speaking with you. Don't go away. Every Saturday is perfect for a night at the cabin. The Cabin Party with Brian O'Connell. Saturday night starting at 7 p.m. on VOCM. Welcome back to the program. Let's go to line number two. Good morning, Jennifer. You're on the air. Hi, Good morning. Good morning to you. Thanks for taking my call. I'm my calling pleasure. What's on your mind, Jennifer? I'm calling from New West Valley. Um, I just wanted to get the word out there that on August the 4th at 6 p.m., we're going to be having a rally um, in the area. Not sure yet of location, but we're having a rally in support of our local hospital, the Dr. Y.K. John, the Kitty Wake Hospital. Um, we're very so what does that mean you're having a rally in support of? Like, are you losing services, or what's the oh, issue that you're demonstrating it's about? It's horrible. It's horrible. Since March, we've had no less than 61 diversions to Gander, where there's no emergency service. Um, sometimes it's all day. Sometimes it's after, like, after 4 p.m. till the next morning, um, you know, that kind of thing. We're down to two doctors, and we've been told we're losing one now the end of July, and there's no talk of if that one will be replaced. So we know if we get down to one doctor, those diversions are just going to increase and increase, right? And um, we don't know. I mean, they they claim we're not going to lose our hospital, but, um, you know, nothing is and uh, even if we don't lose the hospital, we still could lose our emergency services. And, um, you know, we're an hour and a half away from Gander. And, you know, if somebody's having a heart attack or a stroke or, you know, something serious happens, an hour and a half can be, you know, a life or death. So, and so what has happened to your doctor? Did you have a doctor just decide to leave or someone retired? What happened? Um, well, the one that's finishing up now in July, I think he's just—I think he's retiring because he's an older, older gentleman, older doctor, and he's been here for a while. And uh, I think he's retiring. And like many places, we can't seem to hold on to the doctors in the rural areas. We get a doctor here for a short time, and then they move on to bigger places, bigger money, you know, and. Um, they leave here, and and um, then we're left with only one or two. And um, like I said, we, you know, the services have really gone down. Um, and every week, like if you look on our like central health posts, you know, every week it's like emergency services diverted to to Gander, diverted to Gander, diverted to Gander. And you know, it's we live in an aging population. We have. 
two seniors' homes in this area. We have seniors' cottages. We have, you know, an hour and a half for to get them into a hospital, plus then the wait time when they get there. Like, you know, we know Gander is a good hospital, but it can only accommodate so many. And uh, we don't want to lose what we have here. Our hospital is very important to our area, and we don't want to lose it. So we're fighting back as best we can. We've formed um, a Facebook group, and uh, it's become very active. And uh, we're, you know, getting people that are going to speak at the rally and uh, show the importance of, you know, the hospital through the years and why it's still important. And uh, just show the government that we're not taking this line down, that we, we want to keep our hospital. Everybody does. I think when we look around the province, around the country, it's going to become more and more, I'll use difficult, to keep healthcare professionals in certain more rural, isolated parts of the country. Do you agree with that, or do you think that's an excuse that's being made that it's unfounded? Um, I think it's difficult, but I think if the money, you know, if the money was there, um, if they were shown that, you know, um, these areas are in need of doctors. I mean, doctors will go where they're needed and where they can, you know, where they can work in that. I mean, I have a brother-in-law who's a doctor, um, and I have uh, a nephew who's uh, public health is involved with public health right now. Um, you know, they will go where they're needed. They will go where they can to help. Like. My brother-in-law works out in Whitburn. Um, he lives in St. John's. He travels to Whitburn every every day. He could have easily worked in St. John's, but chose to go to Whitburn. So, you know, I think doctors can be, you know, working in rural areas. It's not just all the cities, but um, it has to be shown that, you know, these rural hospitals are important to the people that live here. Like, um, you know, like I'm from, from my own personal standpoint like I don't drive I, my eyesight is too poor and so they close the hospital here it's like okay you know am I going to have to move because you know I'm not going to have a doctor I'm not going to be able to get blood work I'm not going to be able you know so it's you know you're going to lose people out of the communities if you start closing down hospitals because you know people are going to be too worried about their health concerns and they're going to have to move elsewhere. Some people think that's the intention. I don't necessarily agree with that. Uh, now, the province has made one move I saw in the recent past. They're going to pay doctors willing to work in more rural emergency rooms $800 a day extra to do exactly that. Do you think that's going to help? I don't know. I think if it's uh, like advertised properly, um, it may help, but... Um, I don't know overall if it will, because we're in such um, a crisis with this right now because it's been allowed to get to this point. Um, it's, you know, we've seen this decline up at our hospital over, you know, months and months and months, right? We've been watching this, you know, and um, this is not something that just came about overnight. And, um, you know, we know, like... Um, if we don't start trying to 
get you know people involved and say okay look we're not taking this line down you know we have to try to fight back um you know our our hospital is important that you know if the government don't see that we're trying to fight back well then they're never going to do nothing to help us you know like they'll just say oh well they didn't even care enough to fight kind of thing right so we're trying our best out here now to say look come to come to our area we have a beautiful hospital here we have a beautiful area with lots of activities for children and you know there's a lot to offer in this area for a doctor that would like to come here I think that's going to be part of it. It's going to be fighting for what you have, preserve what you have, but also communities, whether it be Fogo Island or Bell Island or out in your neck of the woods, to try to be part of creating the atmosphere where it's going to be attractive for a healthcare professional, doctor included, to come. And I always get in trouble for the one comment that I just made about... You know, it's going to be more and more difficult to keep a doctor in smaller parts of the country. And I do think that some people believe that the plan is simply to try to depopulate certain parts of the province by removing their health care. The reason why I think that might be a slight exaggeration, and I'll get your, your thoughts on my comment here, is that let's just pretend for a second that I'm a liberal member of the House of Assembly, and I'm representing a rural part of the province which is, is suffering with diversions from the emergency room, losing their doctors, what have you. If I know that part of the governmental play, even quietly, is that we're going to allow this to happen so that we can take people out of smaller parts of the province, move into more densely populated parts. If I knew that was happening as a liberal, I could guarantee myself re-election until my demise by saying, this is what's happening. I'm not going to be part of it. I'm leaving the party. I'm crossing the floor. So if it's really happening the way some people think it's happening, that's a political opportunity for an MHA. But if I don't hear and see that happening, their allegiance can't be that tight. I mean, it just can't be that strong, whether it be with Premier Fury or the party itself. If if I'm representing a small part of the province and I think that they're willfully keeping doctors out of my part of the community, I'm going to be re-elected forever because I'm going to say it out loud. What do you think? Yeah, I, um, like, it's hard for me to say because, like, I've heard um, comments made that, you know, from, like, from our local MHA, like, that, oh, he's, you know, he's promising us that, you know, this hospital won't close. But then I've also heard comments that um, it will close from other people in the know, you know, like, um, that are up on government issues and, and know things. Um, and I don't necessarily trust, um, you know, the government uh, to be saying, oh, yeah, we're, we're, I'm not going to let your hospital close because a lot of that to me just political, like, keep supporting me, I won't let you close kind of thing. And it's like, uh, where have you been? Like, we've been, like I said, since March, we've had no less than 61 diversions to Gander. Mm -hmm. And our MHA has been completely silent. Like, I haven't heard a sound from them. And so it's like, if you truly cared about this hospital and keeping it open, where have you been? You've been nowhere, right? And so this is what's brought people now to the front saying, look, if we don't stand up for ourselves, he definitely isn't standing up for us because he's got his government pensions. He's been elected. He, if he don't get elected next time, big deal. He's got his money in his pocket now. We're the ones that's left, you know, to fight this, right? If we don't fight it, then, you know, there, there's nothing, you know, there's no hospital. So 
we need to show them that, look, we're not taking this line down. And, buddy, if you want to stay in politics, then, you know, you got to show us that, you, you know, you're more than just a few words, but that you actually mean what you say and you're willing to fight for the area. Because I don't see where he's fighting at all. Personally, I don't see at all. And I mean, I'm Jennifer, I appreciate the time this morning. So the rally uh, determined yet to be determined where the location is was coming up on the 4th yeah. of August at 6 p.m. When you figure out a location, we're happy to spread the word. Oh, thank you so much, Patty. I really appreciate your time this morning. Thank you so much for talking to me. Yours too. Take good care, Jennifer. Thank you. Bye. You're welcome. Bye-bye. All right. Uh, let's stay on break-ish. So it's one thing when you're waiting to get into the churn in healthcare. You know, whether it be wait time for your procedure, rebooking and rebooking, you've lost your family doctor, whatever the case may be. I don't know if I'll call it the upside, but yes, the bright side of it is when you get in, we do indeed, and we should never lose sight of this, we have some committed, dedicated, compassionate, professional uh professional healthcare workers in all disciplines. So sometimes when you're waiting and you're losing, it feels like it's nothing but doom and gloom. But in the system, there's good people. Let's not lose sight of that. Let's get, uh, go ahead and take a break. Don't go away. Welcome back to the program. Let's go to line number four. Good morning, Dennis. You're on the air. Good morning, Patty. How are you? Hanging in there. How you doing? Good, boy. You, uh, you're back in the saddle. You had a good rest. I had a nice holiday, but unfortunately, as opposed to bringing home a T-shirt as a souvenir, I brought home COVID. So <laughs> getting getting through it, but uh, feeling a bit better. Uh, good for you. Good for you, Patty. Uh, sorry to hear about the COVID, but uh, delighted you got through it okay. Uh, Patty, you. I just wanted to make a comment this morning on our healthcare professionals. Sure. Uh, yesterday, my wife took a fall, and uh, so we ended up in the eMERGE out of St. Clair's. She uh, had a good black eye and a broken wrist. She looks like she went at least one round in the ring with Sonny Liston. Yikes. Sonny Liston is born today. Was he? I'm pretty sure I read that this morning. Hold on. I don't, don't want to distract from the conversation, but yeah. fifth, no, uh, da, 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 no, 50, 59 years ago today, Philly's first heavyweight boxing champion, Sonny Liston, KO'd Floyd Patterson. Yeah. I, I knew I, I read Sonny there Liston today. You weren't born okay. then. No, I was not. <laughs> anyway, I'm sorry to distract. I hope your wife's okay. I'm sorry to hear about her fall. Yeah, no, she's she's good, uh, I must say. Uh, everything went well. And, you know, from what I saw yesterday, we were eight hours in the eMERGE, and they were eight hours well spent. Uh, the system is broken because you should never be in eMERGE for eight hours. But uh, the professional staff... Why I'm telling you, professional, courteous, caring, compassionate, dedicated, in the face of all the overwork that I saw take place. I mean, my my wife went through, you know, the procedure about uh, X-rays and a CAT scan to make sure that nothing happened to her head. Uh, then checking the X-rays again, then resetting the wrist. Then another x-ray to make sure that the wrist was set properly. And then we got home about 10.30 last night. And 9 o'clock, half past 9 this morning, I get a call from St. Clair's to say she has a follow-up appointment on Wednesday at an orthopedic clinic in at the Health Sciences, which I thought was really efficient and, and uh, professional. And But the people I saw at work out there... 
uh, I mean, it, it was crowded, uh, no doubt about that. Uh, but they were they were not put off by it. They were treating people with with compassion. Uh, I, I mean, I, ca- I can't say enough about the people working in a system and trying to keep it going, a system that is not way the, the way it should be. I mean, these people are helping the system function in the face of adversity. It's just, I, I mean, I can't say enough about it. You know, every now and then someone will take a swat at me for mentioning the fact that, you know, I know there's a lot of consternation while people wait to get in to see the doctor in the emergency room or wait for an appointment or look for a family doctor. But by and large, the professionals that you do get to see once you get in are top quality. So I don't know why people get mad when I do say that, because just think about it. It is not good or acceptable when you have a healthcare professional who might be overworked and stressed out and frustrated who might not have the best bedside manner at one portion of their long day. Okay, and they have to do the best they can on that front. But when you know that they are overworked, overwhelmed, stressed out and tired and still able to be professional and compassionate, display that bedside manner that we all need and want when we present inside a emergency room or a a clinic or a hospital, that's extraordinary stuff. And I do think we owe them a thanks. Not to be on bended knee and, you know, I know we pay them and what have you, but they're working in circumstances that I'm pretty sure I couldn't handle. So I'm glad to hear that you were treated, you and your wife were treated the way you were. Well, you're right. They... You know, they're, they're keeping it together. There's no doubt about it. And my, and my second thought when I got home last night was, how lucky were we to have an ER and a hospital, a 10-minute drive out Tassel Road, looking at what people in rural parts of Newfoundland and Labrador are facing today? Uh, because a fall like that can happen to anybody at any time. We were 10 minutes away from help. Other people across this province are hours away from help, and, and uh, now how how destructive must that be to have to go through what we went through in seven or eight hours? Somebody else has to take uh, a two-hour ride, maybe in an ambulance, and uh, to get some appropriate care, or maybe even longer. I mean, it's, so the, the, there's a really monumental challenge for people in rural parts of the province compared to what I experienced, my wife and I experienced yesterday. Absolutely. I mean, there are some reports, and I won't get into specific communities because I don't want to misspeak here, but even if you have to be transported by ambulance in some of these communities, we could be talking six hours round trip. So a community that might only have one ambulance, someone needs to transfer to the closest emergency room where they've been diverted from maybe their own hometown, six hours, no ambulance. And then it just kind of trickles down or ripple effect makes its way through the community. So it's not just the one person, it's the whole community knowing because we kind of have a way of knowing each other's business, especially in smaller towns, and you know that Bernice has gone in the, in the ambulance, and you're worried, sure, Johnny down the road got the bad heart, now what? So all of a sudden, the anxiety just comes, rears its ugly head in so many ways, might be real, might be perceived, but it's the fact for so many communities and so many families, so it's a strange time of life. Well, I, I got to say kudos to, to what I saw last night, and people keeping Good. the system going, and... Uh I only wish that people right across the province could and would have that sort of experience. I mean, these people are working 12-hour shifts and as con- 
constant stress and uh, working with people trying to keep them happy and at the same time provide the care that they need. It's just amazing. Can't say Yeah, it's good stuff. Uh, listen, wish your wife well for me, Doc. Appreciate the time. Thanks, Betty. Take care of yourself. You too. Bye-bye. Bye. All right, uh, there you go. Where am I? 11 o'clock. So what we're going to do is we're going to get ourselves off to the 11 a.m. news. And during that newscast, Dave Williams will update me as to who's next and what's shaking in the queue. One more time, the numbers. If you want to get on the air to discuss a topic of your choosing, if you're in the St. John's metro region, the number to dial, 273-5211. Elsewhere, it's toll-free, long-distance, 1-888-590-VOCM, which is 8626. We're taking a break, and then we're coming back. Nutrition, exercise, keeping the cold at bay. Whatever keeps you feeling great, the Wellness and Healthy Lifestyle Show on your VOCM. Welcome back to the show. Let's go say good morning to Nelson Fagan, Jr. He's the chair of the Newfoundland and Labrador Cattlemen's Association. Good morning, Nelson. You're on the air. Hello? Good morning, Nelson Fagan. Good morning, sir. You're on the air. Oh, thank you. Uh, just uh, wanted to call in and touch. I, I heard the latter part of what Troy was saying, and we, we own an abattoir in Fagan Meats, and we, we compost and bury. And uh, I heard him say about his issues with environment, mm-hmm. and I, I don't know what his personal situation is. I have spoken to him several times, never met the man, but have spoken to him earlier on when he started this project, and he has been having some issues, and, and this, this is not fair to the man. We, we need him. Uh, we are booked up now for fall personal slaughtering. And, you know, we, we deal with a lot. People call, want to get in, they get frustrated with you. We need local avatars to sustain this. I'll just give you the context and those who maybe missed the call that we had with Troy Humber earlier. He's one of the proponents behind Green Valley Beef. They submitted a proposal or they registered their project with the government back in September of 2020. They put up over $1.2 million. The government is in for $720,000. They had the permits for all kinds of stuff, uh, for the building, the well, the septic, the commercial building itself, electrical, da 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 Then they ran into an environmental assessment that rejected their approach to dealing with the animal waste, which would be to do what you're doing. Comp- Postbury in the trenching system. So they were offered alternatives, some of which didn't even make any sense and didn't uh, work because there wasn't Canadian Food Inspection Agency permits in place to incinerate the animals on Brookfield Road, coming all the way from Northern Arm. So all that money, all that time, 30 days given every every so often they say, 30 days will give you an answer. 30 days will give you an answer. Here we are in July of 2022, an abattoir that could have uh, committed 10% of the province's red meat consumption. The doors are closed. Mr. Humber says they're never opening them again. Wow, that's that's a major loss. That would devastate anybody. I don't know what he's going to do. Well, he says it's over. Oh, it's over. Yeah, it's, it's crazy. I mean, I don't know if if he knew going into that uh, how it was put forward to him, whether he was led down the garden path. I have no idea. I have no idea. But tell us about the animal waste. Walk us through what you do, Nelson. So for the animal waste, you know, the, the whole concept of compost and buried and the trenching system, exactly what does that mean? Okay. So what it is, you have to dig uh, waste pits, okay? And you have to have a certain size property to do so, and you have to be burying it as you slaughter. So we schedule the slaughterings in, and you, you, you haul it to this pit. It's kept separate, away from anything else, certain distances. And you take it, you bury it. And then what you do is, Eventually, you dig a new pit. Some stuff can be composted. Some stuff at SRM has to be buried. You cannot leave it exposed. And that's what we do for smaller operators. This, we've been doing this since, well, I was still in schools, 2003, I guess. Or, there was a rendering plant here who would once take it, 
and you can haul it to a rendering plant called Roxy, but they since closed up. So once that w- happened, it was a big rush back then to do something for us local guys, and that was what they came up with. Now, I'm told it's, it's practiced in other provinces, so I guess Newfoundland just adopted that, and we've been doing it ever since. And there hasn't been any issues with that until this push for new abattoirs came on. So what do they do elsewhere? Because it sounds to me, if it can be done safely with the oversight of the Canadian Food Inspection Agency, it certainly sounds better than incinerating it. So is this something that's done with abattoirs around the country, or do you know of any alternatives for animal waste and dealing with it? What's going on here? Well, you can get uh, compost systems. It's a series of big drums, and it it gets moved around. You can take it out and use it for, for soil. It's a wonderful system, but they're very expensive. Okay. I know that, and I know that I know that other provinces are burying like small scale abattoirs. I don't know what Mr. Humber's scale is. Sounds like he has a major operation. Uh, you can bury it up to a certain amount of tonnage, and we meet that tonnage. One of the concerns in years past with the creation of more abattoirs is whether or not we had enough employees and inspectors working for the Canadian Food Inspection Agency itself because it's one thing for an environmental assessment to take place on the provincial level, permits to be granted by the province, but you need the CFIA to be here in numbers strong enough to support the numbers of abattoirs. Where are we? Well, here on the Avalon, I know of two that we deal with for our abattoir on a regular basis. There are two inspectors. Guess who comes out here and do the inspections, and they do uh, they do uh, brainstem testing in 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 control, and just pre pre measuring and keeping guard for against mad cow and BSC and things. So other than mm-hmm. that, there are two inspectors who come around, and I would imagine every area of the province has their own, but for here in my area, there are there are two. I know of two. Mr. Humber and Green Valley Beef, they say they could have produced 10% of the red meat consumption. To your understanding, how much of our red meat is actually produced and slaughtered and uh, distributed from abattoirs here in this province at this moment? That is a number we would like to know, as the cattlemen. <laughs> that is a number we would like to know. Uh, we wouldn't mind getting statistics on that, and that has been discussed amongst us, too. Uh, there are, we know there are a lot of cold cows get shipped out. Uh, whatever we can scoop up as local abattoir operators. Uh, no, most of the beef here is shipped in. The vast majority of it is shipped in. It's all trucked. Everything. Yeah. I believe, here, I believe if you look on the government's registration for local abattoirs who has red meat licenses, I believe there is an... Uh, oh, God, I just looked there just last month. We had this, top, this conversation. And I believe it was 27 or 29 licensed abattoirs in this province. Uh, A number of those were white meat licensed only. So that's just chickens? Oh, I guess and pork? Poultry, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I know there was a fellow I used to deal with, uh, Harry, out in Kilbride. He had a black Angus herd, and his abattoir went by the wayside for some pretty flimsy reasons. But there's no, you know, when the government is so keen to talk about doubling food production, deal directly with our food security and insecurity, it's not just in greenhouses and vegetable farms and the like, even though they're obviously important. It's, it's, it extends throughout the entire gamut. So for this particular massive operation to now have shuttered its doors, done away with its cattle, laid off all its employees, 
these, and they're never going back, or so they say, it's a loss that it's going to be hard to replicate because it's not just how big that operation might have been. For others out there thinking, you know what, maybe that's an industry I'd like to be in. It looks like there's some supports. It looks like there's some land available. Then they hear those stories, and all of those potential business projects go away now. I'm not going to be two years later, $1.2 million lighter and no action. So it has a ripple effect beyond just the Humber family. Exactly. Absolutely. As for funding and the way these things work, they are wonderful programs set up. And I have a wonderful relationship with government, as do most of us producers. Baseball guys, we all do. Yeah. Uh, the funding is, is a wonderful thing, but don't jump into it eyes wide open. It's, it's not like that. I just built a new – I'll give you an example. I just built a new barn. A uh, 60 by 40, a wonderful building. The first barn built in my family since 1954. It was an exciting time. We went ahead with the project. It was fine. Contractor issues. Now, with the funding, they give you the money. You kick in yours. You are given a set date to have your, your, your building paid for in full before that reimbursement comes. They do give you an advance, but the rest of it you don't get until you pay for the building. So I was given a, a date. I called. I was told pay for the building. And you will get your money sent to you. If you don't pay by a certain date, you know, we can probably extend it. And they did once. So finally, I had to pay the contractor by a certain date. I paid him. I believe it was the 21st of January. He was not finished. He was, he was coming back. And uh, there's still a bunch of work needs to be done. Can't get a hold of him. So I called. And I, I expressed my concerns about this. I said, what happens now when he's not done he's paid? And uh, what, what rights do we have, right? And... Uh, I was told that, um, well, it becomes a civil thing. Make a complaint against the BBB or Structural Association of NL with him or whatever and handle it yourself. So I said, well, how come this is, is done like this? And they said, well, in the event that the contract, we've had contracts not get paid by producers. And their contracts come back on us looking for the money. So I said, what about the guy like me who abides by the rules, saves for a number of years to do this, and then... I get the dirty end of the stick. Who comes to back for me? Mm-hmm. Right? So now the contractor got his money. He's laughing. He's not finished. It's out of my pocket to finish the building. He's got his money. And there's another thing about this, too, about this funding stuff. I just, this is my first time ever applying for anything. I'm here farming vegetables and raising animals. I'm still using implements behind an old tractor. We have one new one now. An old tractor that I, I plowed fields with, the same tractor and implements behind it. When I was nine years old, Patty. We have nothing here in the way of new equipment as such. There's a few things we gather up as we can afford them. Sometimes it's not the money you spend, it's the money you save. No doubt. Always is. 100%. Uh, Nelson, we're going to follow up with the provincial government here because, you know, it's too big an issue. And it's not just about Green Valley beef. It's about all of us. Because if we're suffering with price points at the grocery store and we know all the contributions, whether it be to greenhouse gas emissions, we could be cut off from the mainland for extended amounts of time. The story has long been we only have about five to seven days worth of food on the island. We know that the the, 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 the potential to be cut off for five or seven days is real so to not be aggressively moving towards peppering the landscape of greenhouses making sure that the right projects get off the ground green lit and operating asap as long as they meet all the standards environmental assessments cfia all the rest of it we can't afford to have green valley beefs and the similar operations go by the wayside we simply cannot afford it exactly and like they were talking about bringing in new regulations we had to do an environmental assessment 
at a cost of $50,000. No one in the province does that. They come in, they put these pipes in the ground around your, your, uh, your holes, your composting holes. They come down once a year. Out of the province again, they're coming down. It's cost, uh, if the number said to me it would be $10,000 annually to come down and do this environmental testing once a year. And that's another $835 a month I had to scrabble to get. Somewhere. Yeah, uh, that's a pretty big scramble. Five and seven year old, I'll be 37 in two weeks. It's not easy. And, and another thing, there's so many young farmers want to get into this, and, and, and the land is tied up. Like, I know of land around here that is sitting banking. It was cleared off years ago for farming. It was issued out to different people for farming. I know of three of the men have since died. The land is just sitting there. Government put out 64,000 hectares for usable developing farmland. I would like to see it's a statistic on what land is around lying idle. They wouldn't have to bulldoze more trees that get more young people jump right into it. The numbers are there. We can do this food thing, but there's, there's a lot of red tape preventing that. Same with the pasture lands. I sit as a chair as one pasture and I another director on another pasture. And with the funding for that, like they want you to have the money to put up front, $30,000 is what they'll give you. So now we got we just took over one pasture. We're a new association. We have no income. We took in $900 this year in dues for people putting cattle in with our animals. Now, where we, how, how many years will it take us to get our portion to put a fence on anything? Right now, we have an account with a fencing program, and me and the vice chair are doing it, and we're going to have to put that through ourselves. There's almost $5,000 of fencing materials there. We've used so much of it. And I, I, the funding needs to change for things such as that, too. I would like to see like an operating line of credit. And Crown Lands and the Department of Agriculture, they don't know what the other one is doing. No one's on the same page. It's frustrating. We're getting time on it. Yeah. Nelson, I really appreciate your perspective and your contribution this morning. Thanks for the call. No problem. Thank you, man. Take good care. Bye-bye. And uh, even in the the vegetable world, you know, there's a certain things because the quality of the soil will result in the quality of the yield. And we don't even do maybe enough on that front, so say farmers in that industry. And, you know, no mandate of crop rotations and those types of things to keep the soil as fertile and as productive as it needs to be. Before we get to the break, let's go to line number one. Good morning, Henry. You're on the air. Hi, Patty. How are you doing? Doing excellent. How are you doing? Good. I got a little story for you. On July the 13th, I was at a local restaurant called Brown's in White Way. I'm a volunteer firefighter with the Trinity South Central Fireman, and this old lady began to choke. I had to do the Heimlich maneuver on her to save her life. So as a volunteer firefighter, you would have learned that in training for said position through, I mean, the standard first aid to learn the Heimlich, as far as I can remember, that's CPR and some of the obvious. I mean, uh, sorry, go right ahead. So tell us exactly what happened. You're sitting at your own table, and you hear or see someone struggling, and well, just paint the picture for us. Her uh, grandson was all sitting down to eat my dinner, and he, I mean, her and her great-grandson was sitting down. Then he yelled out, she's choking, she's choking. And I jumped up, and I said, I'm a volunteer firefighter, and I started doing a Heimlich on her at Brown's. And how many abdominal thrusts did it take before she spat it out? Four. Four. Yep. Yeah, it could take a few, and people would be hesitant to do it because you got to apply some pretty significant pressure and power to the thrust, too. It's not just a matter of a gentle tap against the xiphoid process or the rib cage. Yep. you really got to get in there. 
Yes, sir. And you, the best thing of all, the, the lady was 91 years old. God love her. Well, God love you, Henry. If you weren't there, who knows what have been what might have been the outcome for that poor lady? What was she choking on? Piece of meat. Uh, a piece of turkey. Piece of turkey. Yeah. yeah. Well, listen. Good for you, Henry. Uh, you yeah. should be applauded and thanked, and I'm sure that family is more than pleased that there was a volunteer firefighter who knew the Heimlich sitting right there in the restaurant. Yeah. Well, thank you, sir, for for your time. I'm happy to have you on. What's the food like at Browns? Good. Very good. You have to come out. Well, we, well, we just gave them a little shout-out, too. Appreciate this, Henry. Bravo. Good on you. Thank you, sir. You're welcome. All the best. Bye-bye. I'll just throw this back into the hopper, like I've said in the past. You know, I know we have to learn the three R's in school, right? The reading, the writing, and the arithmetic. Totally get it. But some other life skills. And we've heard stories. There was a young fellow who won a life-saving award so many years ago because it was either the Heimlich or his friend suffered a bad cut and they were out fooling around in the woods. And he knew what to do. Maybe some of these first aid courses pepper through your K-12 to career. You know, with more advanced techniques, the older you get, what have you. Can you imagine if you were not in a restaurant with a trained volunteer firefighter, but your 13-year-old son or daughter saw what was happening. The call came from the table. She's choking on the turkey. She's choking on the turkey. And that young person knew how to apply the Heimlich? The kind of things that, you know, it's part of learning for life. Let's go ahead and take a break. Don't go away. Welcome back to the program. Let's go to line number two and say good morning to the Liberal member for Virginia Waters, Pleasantville. He's Minister Responsible for Labor, Workplace NL, and the Environment and Climate Change. That's Bernard Davis. Good morning, Minister Davis. You're on the air. Good morning, Patty. How are you today? I'm doing okay. Thanks for asking. How about you? Good, good. Uh, I'd just like to congratulate uh, Henry for doing that uh, big service out in uh, Brown's uh, restaurant there. That's uh, pretty impressive. I just heard that when I was waiting to get on with you. He saved a life. I mean, there you go. Pretty impressive, to say the very least. Okay, let's get down to Green Valley beef. The province and your government has talked about doubling food production, 64,000 additional hectares of land for different models inside the business. Then you have some like Green Valley Beef who could have supplied 10% of the red meat consumed in the province. They went through the process. They registered the project in 2020 uh, in September. The investment made by the government, the investment made by the family, permits given for all kinds of well, septic, commercial building approval, electrical. But when it came to an environmental assessment on waste management, they weren't given the approval to do what every other abattoir is doing, as I'm told, as I understand, to compost and bury the animal carcass. What's happening? Well, Patty, it's a, it's a very good thing. Uh, every abattoir in the province has to go through an environmental assessment uh, process. Um, uh, this this uh, Green Valley is no different, and they went through that process. They were released, actually, from the process uh, with a condition of release, uh, which was that they have to provide uh, a waste management plan. We're still waiting in the department for the waste management plan uh, to be provided, and then we would look at it and approve it based on a bunch of different things. There's a lot of options that could be utilized uh, in that plan. It could be incineration option. It could be a landfill at an approved site as an option. It could be composting, as you just said. Uh, it could be, uh, you know, um, uh, dealing with it in other ways, that are bearing it on site, uh, provided that they have, uh, you know, a, a registered um, consultant come in and, and check to make sure the groundwater, uh, it doesn't uh, affect the groundwater in the area. Because we've we got to understand that the environmental assessment process is not just to protect the environment itself that we see and, 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 and feel, but also what we taste in the water that we all drink. We don't want another Walkerton to happen uh, based on making a poor decision uh, by 
putting something in place uh, that isn't uh, functional and won't work for the people of the province. And, and that's why we have an environmental assessment uh, process that deals with 24 government agencies and boards, uh, both federal and provincial, um, which is a really important piece for us um, to get that insight into these processes. Minister, he says, the family says, or the business says, that part of their, approve, their uh, application was to compost and bury in the trenching system on site, like other abattoirs are doing. You mentioned incineration, but then we're also led to believe that you would have to truck in one or two carcasses a week from Northern Arm to Brookfield Road to incinerate in that facility when the Canadian Food Inspection Agency doesn't even have a permit to incinerate in that facility, I'm told. So if they needed an environmental assessment, who was the onus on to ensure the consultant shows up on site for that assessment because the Humber family says they've never seen one. Yeah, in, in general terms, the, the proponent would do the environmental assessment uh, based on, uh, or sorry, the consultant would do the environmental assessment in this case. I, I think uh, in this case, particularly, uh, uh, fisheries and forestry provided a consultant because there was a, a push for regional uh, regional abattoirs, and uh, my understanding is they've worked with that. Uh, I think to get a bit more insight into that, you'd have to talk to uh, the minister responsible for, for that area. But what I can say to you, Patty, is it's really important. Uh, the Canadian Food Inspection Agency regulates how SRM waste, which is specified risk material waste, is dealt with. And that's not us that deals with that, but the proponent of any project, uh, that's why when you come through the environmental assessment, you have to provide us with a waste management plan on how you are planning to deal with that. Some of the carcasses could be uh, buried on site, could be composted, as I said, uh, it could be landfilled. But some of this waste has to be dealt with in a particular way based on the federal uh, uh, food inspection agency. And those things are could be incinerated, could also be, uh, could also be done through... Um, through landfilling if, if a consultant says it can work. But one of the things that we've got to know is what way they're going to be dealing with it. If we haven't received the waste management report or a plan, then how can we uh, um, accurately say that this would be safe for the people of, of that area and the people of the province? Where does government's role beginning and end here? Because if we're the overseer, oversight, monitor, running the environmental assessments, what have you, which is required. Now, there's an argument to be made where some environmental assessments maybe haven't gone as far as they should have for all kinds of approvals in different industries. But if, on the one hand, the government wants to double food production, wants to deal directly with food insecurity, what role does your department play to ensure that the, the plan is put in place? Because 10% of red meat consumption is a big deal. That's a lot of volume. That does away with a lot of emissions for transporting that does a lot away with a lot of our reliance on ocean x or marine atlantic so what role does your department play to make sure that every stone is overturned absolutely everything you just said is a valid concern and something we're all concerned about but our, our department is main priority is the safety of the people that we all represent in in this province and live next door to and vacation with and all those and all those things we do and celebrate with it's so important that the people are protected that's why we need to know these uh, questions that we are asking and that's why this process is so important uh and every abattoir regardless of its regional or not has to go through an environmental assessment it has been for a number of years and uh you know we've had a, a an abattoir just come out of that process because they gave us the waste management plan and, and it was an approved waste management plan based on what they were doing 
and they they're I think in their plan they uh, are looking at composting and incineration as well uh, for a portion of that so like to say that there's not an option to move forward we all understand how important it is for food security that we we uh, uh, do it as close to home as we possibly can and we're all in favor of that in this department as well but we also have to do our due diligence on the other end to make sure that the safety of the people uh, is protected as well and, and that's what we're doing in this case and and we're more than willing to sit down with any proponent and work with them uh, try to find solutions uh, that they have but they still have to do the work with respect to consultants uh, or in most cases or provide us with how they're going to deal with their waste management uh, plan and then we will look at it and if there needs to be tweaks made to it we'll offer some suggestions and and offer some solutions that they may be able to utilize themselves but at the end of the day it's their plan on how they're going to deal with the waste that's caused by their operation so um, that that's where we're to and I think that's an important piece that we have to stay focused on Patty uh, you know protecting the people and ensuring that uh, that groundwater that could potentially be inf- uh, uh, affected by changes that are made is protected let me focus in a little tighter because it's their project, but it's also our project. There was $800,000 up front from the Humber Valley or the, the Humber family and the business itself, but also $720,000 is my understanding from the province. So they're the proponent, but so are we. So is your department. So is your government. So what more active role could your department play to ensure that $720,000 of taxpayers' money is not lost along with 10% of red meat consumption? Absolutely, and that's what I, fisheries and uh, forestry were working very closely with the proponents, uh, all proponents, not just this one, all the proponents is my understanding. Uh, we worked with them to try to uh, help them navigate uh, sometimes a complex system that people that are uh, not necessarily used to utilizing the environmental assessment system, uh, we tried to navigate them through that system. We've worked with the proponents. We've had one successful, successfully come through that process. We've had one, uh, this proponent itself has been released. Uh, the only thing we're awaiting is the waste management plan. So at some point, it's easy to blame government for not doing what they've done in this case. But it's easy also to say that, you know, we're waiting on some information to come in to approve. I'm hopeful that we'll get the waste management plan in. I'm hopeful that we'll be able to find a solution to help this proponent because we all need this food security and we all need this food to be developed as close to home as we can. And we're all about economic development and trying to help that process. But at some point, we've got to protect the people. And this is the, this is the, uh, I guess, the line in the sand that we need to have. Uh, you know, we have to understand where the waste is going to be dealt with and how it's going to be dealt with in a safe manner. And if we don't have that report uh, or that waste management plan from the opponent, how are we to deal with uh, ensuring the safety of the people in that area? That's what the people in that area demand and want, and, and I'm sure that's what the individual wants as well. So if there's, a, if there's a piece of advice I can provide is that let's get that waste management plan in so we can all look at it and evaluate it, and hopefully there's a, a solution there in that plan that uh, we'll be able to move forward uh, with this uh, operation. Nobody denies the importance and the requirement of a comprehensive environmental assessment. Nobody disputes that. And so we'll go back to the company now and see where they are, where we all stand, because I all of a sudden feel like I've got some skin in the game with my contribution to the $720,000 very quickly. So doubling food production, the expansion of more agricultural land, 64,000 hectares. That was the number. And this is as old as, I'm going to say, five years that this commitment was made. Where are we on the 64,000 hectares? How much of it has been cleared? How much is now being utilized, whether it be for root vegetables or anything else under the agricultural sun? 
Yeah, that's a very good question. I wouldn't be able to give you that without talking to my colleague, uh, Minister Bragg, because it's not in my shop. The uh, uh, Crown Lands is not in my shop. I know that we're making some headway in there. I'd be uh, making a mistake by trying to hit a number with you here today. But I can uh, reach out to Minister Bragg. I know he's at a a federal uh, territorial minister's meeting now on the west coast of the country. Uh, But I'll definitely uh, reach out to him and and ensure he gets that information for you and your listeners, Patty. I appreciate the time. We'll go back to the Humber Valley and Green Valley beef because these types of projects are just too important. I wish we had more time because there's so much in your portfolio. Maybe we'll reach out again next week or the week thereafter to dig into some other issues. Thank you for this, Minister Davis. Absolutely. Thank you. I just want to say congratulations to Alex and his family as well. I know how important that is for the region that we we all live in here and the province in general. Coop Stanley, hard to beat. Thanks for this. Absolutely. Thanks. You're welcome. That's the Minister of Environment and Climate Change, Bernie Davis. Let's take a break for the news. When we come back, we're speaking with you. Your VOCM Mornings with Jerry Lynn Mackey and Ben Murphy, 530 to 9 a.m. weekdays on your VOCM. And welcome back. Let's head off to line number one, top of the board. Good morning, Tom. You're on the air. How you doing, Paddy? My first time, Carla. Welcome to the show. I'm doing fine. How about you? I'm doing good. Thank you. Uh, Speaking about the Humber cattle industry and everything, I lived in Alberta for 40 years, mm-hmm. and I'm familiar with the the cattle industry and everything. But in all due fact, I don't see why they don't have a rendering plant here in Newfoundland, where all this is processed, and then the byproducts can be sold again. I guess it's a volume issue, right? If we had more and more cattle production, more and more abattoirs, maybe there would be a business model for having a rendering plant, So, which could do all kinds of stuff, not just animal waste. My understanding is it's uh, industrial fats and household waste. All of these things can be rendered into various products. So I guess it's a volume issue. What do you think? I think, uh, you know, with what's going on, you've got all these meatpacking plants across the island and all the rendering products come into this rendering product, then the products go out. I mean, if you've got a whale that washes up on the ocean, it can be rendered. You're absolutely right. I mean, it's all about fatty tissue. So, That's right. Well, I don't know what they make. They make fertilizers and stuff, I think, is what generally no. comes from a rendering plant? Your Kodak film processing is a bioproduct that comes from a cow. Your makeup for... Any lady that puts on makeup comes from a cow. Bone meal. Everything comes from a cow. I think you can add some fish waste into that, too, when we're talking about makeup and what have you. You You know what? That's an interesting question. I never even thought about the next step because we talk about it all the time. Secondary processing, tertiary processing. If we had more and more cattle production, I guess there would be more and more of a business model for a rendering plant. Maybe if you had all the cattle producers and the abattoir owners in some form of co-op with a rendering plant and all hands share in the profits and all hands share in a place to send their waste product, it's probably an excellent idea. I didn't even think of it to be honest Tom well Patty it's not only that it's all the process Alberta processes processes everything in Alberta every animal they they gotta do the due diligence and have a look and investigate and go and tour these plants and see what they can do for here because if we want to grow we got to look forward. we got to think outside the box. 
And you're doing exactly that because I, I think you're right. And I'm going to give that some more thought and speak like Nelson Fagan from the Cattlemen's Association and the Humber family and whoever else is out there in the, you know, Gerard Cavanaugh up the shore. People are in the business. They know what the rendering plant can mean to their industry. It, you know, a, an easy place for the offload of carcass and uh, a secondary product that can at some point help pay for the rendering plant itself. So makes a lot of sense yeah. to me. It makes a lot of sense to me too, and I would need to make up. Uh, make, uh, we have a problem where I have a cabin where I'm blacked up pond and nylon pond, and there's a lot of issues up here. And I hope that the MHA does her due diligence to get our problems sorted up because we got a farm going it too, but it's on a blueberry farm, and we want to know that if there's pesticide going to be used, if it goes down into the river, it goes right to Conception Bay overfalls. So there's other issues, right, that we need to get across. There always is. Explain your issue one more time. Just explain that issue one more time for me. They're going to be taken out of blueberry farm, putting in vegetable farm. Now, the runoff, if you're going to use pesticides, right, and it's going to run mm-hmm. off, if it goes into the river, it's going to ruin our river system right down to, uh, from Mars, or from Black Duck Pond, down to Conception Bay Overfalls, where the kids all go swimming, right down, down to the ocean, and the fish got to come up and spot. So there's a lot of issues. I'm very nervous right now. So, but the thing is, I do my due diligence to get things correct, and I, people are not answering questions. Well, I mean, that's where the government says, you know, we have to be attentive to environmental assessments, and that certainly would include where the runoff is for any pesticides or herbicides or whatever's used in the growing of whatever product. Uh, Tom, appreciate the time, sir, especially the thought around a, a rendering plant. So I'm going to give that more consideration and see where I can go with it. Well, Patty, it's the answer to the beginning of our questions. It, it, you're probably right. Where were you in Alberta? I was in uh, High River. I'm familiar okay. with the Cargill plant. Uh, I worked on the lakeside there. I helped install the equipment there to build that plant. And, I of course, Cargill had some issues with the COVID and what have you. High River's right outside of Calgary, right? Yes, south of Calgary. So sometime in the mid-'90s, uh, High River had a massive flood. Yes. And you were there then? Two. Yes. Okay. And again, I saw uh, the major flood was in 2000, I believe, 13, when the whole town flooded out. Yeah, I know it flooded out sometime in the mid-90s, too, because there was two young fellas uh, that were friends of mine living and working in Jasper. I played some hockey with them. They owned the cab company. They were both from High River. I just remember them telling us that their, their families had been flooded out. And that's some, I'm going to guess, 1995, 1994, something like that. Yes, that's right. And the last flood, there was uh, a friend who was a, a Newfoundlander lost his life in that flood, trying to get out. Is that right, hey? Yes. Interesting. Good to have you on the show, Tom. Appreciate your time. Thank you.
I'll be talking to you again about this other issue. I look forward to it. Okay, bye-bye. Yeah, High River, uh, right outside of Calgary. I wish I could remember those guys' names. They were good fellas, good hockey players. One in particular is defenseman. I think he played major junior. Maybe in Kelowna, if I remember correctly. All right, let's take our final break of the morning. Final break of the week. So let's go to line number two. Good morning, John. You're on the air. Yes, Patty. Uh, how did the uh, Heimlich family get on with that case where they wanted to be paid for people using the name? That Heimlich maneuver? Um, yeah, I don't know. I didn't know that was a thing. Apparently so, yeah. So don't be surprised if you get a bill in the mail. Uh, uh, I, I won't pay. I won't be paying any bill, but whatever. <laughs> uh, yes, another thing with the uh, Humber family and that for composting and that. Do you know that uh, Dominion Stores now got a thing on the go called the Loop? All their waste is boxed in the evening, and they call the farm sometime in the, the day, and uh, it'll go to the farms to use for the seed. Yep. We knew it was on the go, didn't we? I knew it was on the go. There was actually some further conversation about making sure that almost expired or recently expired foods make their way to food banks and other community organizations, too. So I think these things were kind of... We're kind of the last to get on board like we are most times. You know, like the hula hoop was, was being used in Vancouver 10 years later. They were wrapping around their hips here. So we're a little bit late to the game sometimes. But, yeah, that's a good play. Good plan. Well, the main reason I call today is... Uh uh, I'll be 75 now on July the 30th, and I've been after the Killick in here to get an appointment, see a doctor, so he can fill out uh, oh my form. i got to have filled out before I can go get my license. Yep. I'm 75. Yes, sir. She called me yesterday and told me, I'm sorry, Mr. Maloney, uh, we're not doing any of that now till September month. So you're going to have to go into the government office and see if you can get an extension on your license that you got now. So isn't that a bit much? Yeah, I mean, I think the issue about uh, the frequency of medical exams before your license renewal, I think at 75, is it once every five years? And when you get to 85, is once every two years or once every year or something? Is that it? Oh, I don't know. I'm just saying this is the first time it happened to me. Okay. Well, it shouldn't be as onerous as it seems to be for so many. So just describe exactly what you ran into one more time for me. Uh, I've been trying to get my license now, and, and you got to see a doctor. Apparently, they sent me a note saying that yep. I had to have a medical done by a doctor before I can apply for my license. Yeah, and that's everyone who turned 75. Yeah. She called me the other, yesterday and told me that uh, they wouldn't be doing any of their medicals now until after September. So no At whatever clinic or something. Yeah. And so I can't understand where the doctor can't sit down and talk to me for five minutes and uh, do a medical. I'm not sure how comprehensive the medical exam is. I imagine it's more about your hearing and your eyesight and your reflexes versus, well, actually, I shouldn't say that because I have no idea what's involved. Right on. So that's all I want to say. Okay, John, I appreciate it. Listen, before you go, so Phil and Janet Heimlich, their concern is not about using the name. Their concern is whether or not it's being taught properly. So it's the debate between whether you're going to slap or squeeze in the abdominal thrust. So they don't care that you call it the Heimlich. They want to make sure it's taught properly. That's what I just found oh. out.
Okay, thanks. Thanks, champ. All the best. You too. Bye-bye. All right, last word this morning goes to line number three. Good morning, Derek. You're on the air. Good morning, Patty. I hope you had a great holiday. I did have a great holiday, except for the virus I dragged home. But anyway, that's it. There you go. Uh, I just want to, uh, I guess, end your show on a little bit of positive note uh, about an event tomorrow. It's called By the Sea. It's going to be down in the... Uh, green form room in City Hall, and basically it's been put out by an organization called um, Old School uh, Generational Projects, and it's it's about dementia, and it's a great uh, going to be a great little show for families who are living with family members who uh, have dementia and, and want to get them engaged and uh, be participatory in, in an activity. Sometimes, you know, people with dementia are sitting home for long, long periods of time and family members are trying to keep them, uh, you know, engaged and whatever. And here's this organization now has come up with a, uh, a great plan in using their arts and, and so on for working with uh, kids with uh, different generations and taking stories from that generation and and put them into a 45-minute play. And so they have two two sessions on tomorrow, one at 11 o'clock in the morning and the other at 2 o'clock, and it's a free admission. Uh, they just ask if, there's a, if you can give a donation uh, towards uh, their programs. Uh, but... Uh, I think people would, you know, family members who have dementia would find it extremely uh, beneficial. We need more and more of these types of supports and events or programs, whatever the right term is. Derek, give us the details one more time before we run out of time here this morning. So it's down at City Hall, the green form room. Uh, at 11, one show is at 11 o'clock and the other is at 2. And again, there's no admission, just a donation at the door. If you wish to make it, you don't, there's no obligation to do so. And uh, hopefully they'll get a nice uh, group of people down there to be able to see because they put a lot of work into this uh, program and this thing. And, and there'll be a lot, you'll see a lot more coming from this uh, new charity uh, when it comes to what they're doing for intergenerational uh, uh, communications and programs. So. And maybe next week, uh, Patty, I'll give you a call. There's another organization I'm working with, uh, and we're getting ready to bring people over to Gallipoli for the unveiling of the uh, the new caribou over there. So we'll leave that for another day. But uh, uh, hopefully we'll see people down there tomorrow at uh, City Hall. Hope so. Thanks for this, Derek. Okay, Patty. Take care. Have a great weekend, Mark. You too. Bye-bye. All right, there we go. Uh, good show today. Big thanks to everyone who supports the program, and we will indeed pick up this conversation again on Monday morning right here on VOCM and Big Land FM's Open Line. On behalf of the producer, David Williams, I'm your host, Patty Daly. Have yourself a safe, fun, happy weekend. We'll talk Monday. Bye-bye.